The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Greek gods of Zeus, Apollo, Ares, Athena, Poseidon, Dionysius, and many more were the deities who lived atop Mount Olympus, who aided the Greeks who worshipped them below. These very human-like gods were flawed and complicated. They hurt those they no longer favored. They actively helped those who they did favor or those who could be useful when it came to their own godly and often diabolical schemes. They tricked and manipulated humans to serve their own selfish agendas. They fought with each other, imprisoned each other. They came to power by overthrowing other gods. To tackle all of Greek mythology would require a lot more time than we have today, but we managed to squeeze a lot of their crazy stories in, give an overview of who the gods were, and talk about who recorded their stories so we know of them today on today's weird dragons, monsters, gods, heroes, and strange, epic, mythological adventures edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the mother sucker, the suck master, and you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious, where it can wait, it can wait. Recording the Suck Dungeon again today with Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the high priestess, Harmony Valley Camp, script keeper, Zach Flannery, queen of the suck, Lindsay Cummins. Big thanks again to our Patreon supporters, giving $3,200 on behalf of our space lizards this month to holding out help. HoldingOutHelp.org provides those who come from a polygamous culture the resources needed to transition from isolation to independence. Link in the episode description if you'd like to learn more or donate more, HoldingOutHelp.org. Thank you again for the recent ratings and reviews for Time Suck and also for Scared to Death. Every rating review helps us so much. Uh, If you really want to spread Scared to Death, follow either me or uh, or Lindsay or, you know, uh, the podcast itself on Instagram. Uh, you can follow, you know, at Scared to Death Podcast on Instagram and tag friends with your new favorite STD by commenting with their Instagram handle in the comment section uh, of the sweet, scary little preview videos. 
that Reverend Dr. Joe uh, makes every week. Just tag them. You can do the same thing with the Time Suck videos, um, you know, making those little videos so you can tag them to spread the suck or spread the STD is, uh, you know, part of why we make those. So thank you if you do that already. Uh, hope the stand-up special recording went well in Detroit this past week and had to record this podcast in advance. Also hope I had a blast at the 10,000 Laughs Comedy Festival in Minneapolis as well. I think both those shows, uh, you know, Minneapolis and Detroit are all the shows, I guess, ended up selling out. So very, very fun. Off to Helium Comedy Club in Portland this week, October 24 through 26. Those tickets are selling fast. Uh, I think some of those shows may be sold out now as well. Going to be at Columbus, Ohio, Funny Bone next week, November 1st and 2nd. Comedy Works in Denver, 7th through the 9th. Those uh, Columbus and Denver also selling fast. And then a live time suck in Denver on the 10th. Um, and now let's talk about a new program we're launching here on Time Suck for Business Owners. Real quick, uh, this was inspired by the amazing support our community has already for, for you know one another. Support so strong. It's really inspiring. Uh, it's awesome to think about. Uh, we're calling this new program Order of the Suck. And it's like the acronym SUCK. Society of the Understanding of Critical Knowledge. Or, you know, I think, I think Society for the Understanding of Critical Knowledge. I'm correcting it as I say it. That makes a lot more sense to me. Um, ex quo uberibus. We're trying to make it fancy. And Latin nerds, we do know that uberibus can also mean breast. So it could translate to order of the breast. Huh, not bad. Hey, Lucifina. But here's what it's about. Uh, similar to what we did for the street team with the stickers, uh, we're inviting Time Suckers to head to the Time Suck Shopify store October 28th. Sign up to receive one of our free Time Suck Freemason type stickers. These stickers are only going to uh, go to Time Suckers who own a business, uh, who work at a business that would be cool with placing one of these marking stickers outside the business, like, you know, uh, above the front door, on a front window, somewhere visible, anywhere visible. And then each business who signs up, you know, they'll get their sticker. There's only 75 this first round. Once you receive it, please stick it, email, you know, where you stuck it to harmony at timesuckpodcast.com. In this email, be sure to include the name of your business and location. And that way we can make a running list of all these businesses. And then fellow time suckers can visit order of the suck establishments to support those who support the suck, right? Support each other. How sweet is that? Hail Nimrod. Again, order the suck signups officially launched Monday, October 28th, noon Pacific time in the time suck Shopify store. If you're a business owner or work somewhere that supports Time Suck, make, make a gosh dang, oh my heck reminder so you can uh, register for your Order of the Suck marking sticker. Excited to see where this goes. Hail Nimrod. Uh, got some silly teas also hitting the store today and then we're off. We're off here in a second. Uh, we have too many silly phrases now. Oh my heck? Wackadoodle? Do you even cold, bro? Why this big deal? Well, we got four different phrase shirts to choose from. Very different designs. Bella brand, 100% cotton tees. Also made out of 500% Greek god muskrat labria, right? For that Greek god comfort. All muskrats, you know, all muskrat labia taken only from Mount Olympus to get the finest and the strongest. A uh, link to the store on the TimeSuck app in the episode description. And, and now it is Greek god time, right? Get ready for a lot of info. Lots to suck on today. Greek mythology, it's a mouthful. Hard to fit it all in. Feel like I might choke at times. For sure gagged a few times on some of these words, but I kept on sucking. And there's a lot of fun ear candy coming your way. Jason and the Argonauts, Heracles and his 12 tasks, Perseus and Medusa, so much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to it. So many fantastic stories and creatures and major and minor gods to go over today. So many words that uh, are going to be hard, hard for me to say. If I do um, fail on the pronunciation front, I just want you to know it's not for lack of effort. I mean, you can download the show notes from the TimeSuck app if you want to see an insane amount of pronunciation notes. <laughs> and I practiced them, I promise. 
Uh, the ancient Greeks didn't play any epic Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, but holy shit, did their gods uh, embody that glorious game. The Greek gods were very present in the stories of the lives of the ancient Greeks in ways you don't really hear about in major religions today. The gods would seduce, even impregnate humans. They'd, they'd rape them. Uh, on occasion, the gods actively fought in battles waged by the humans below. How intimidating would that be to fight a god in battle? I mean, you can train all you want with a sword and shield, but I don't think you're going to stand a chance against someone with divine blood running through their veins. Unless you're fighting the god of always losing. If you've got to pick a god to fight, that's the one you want to go for. Uh, the god of crybabies might have a chance against that god. The god of weak noodle arms and quickly tired shoulders who have a hard time holding a sword for a length of time. That's a good god to fight. The god of very low blood sugar. Solid God to fight. The guy, that guy who needs to like sit down and constantly, you know, uh, you know, keep from passing out all the time. Good God to battle. But, you know, the Greek gods, not so good for the most part. How the Greeks worship their gods varied from town to town, from city state to city state. There's, there's no Greek God equivalent to a, a Christian or Hebrew Bible or Islamic Quran. No real equivalent to the Hindu Vedas, you know, the books of Hindu knowledge that grew over hundreds of years. No, no equivalent to the various texts of, you know, Buddhism. Luckily, a few ancient authors did put together some stories that, you know, catalog which gods existed, what their, what their tales were. But those stories never spawned a religion similar to the major religions of today. Uh, it was a religion. It is still a religion, which I'll mention later. But uh, if you think there's a lot of different ways to interpret the Bible, and there is so many different Christian denominations out there, there was actually far more variance in how the Greek gods were worshipped from town to town, temple to temple, person to person. The ancient Greek equivalent of churches, you know, were the temples temples devoted to one specific god or goddess. A city could have and often did have many different temples dedicated to many different gods. Each city-state also usually had one god who was like a patron god, a god more important to that city-state than other gods, a god believed to have founded that city-state in many cases. You know, the, the god favored the city, like, you know, Corinth chose Poseidon, Lord of the Sea as their patron. And, and Athens chose, you know, Athena. If you wanted to gain favor from a god or goddess, you would go to their temple, make sacrifices. Uh, oftentimes sacrificed in a living creature. And the ritual of how to make that sacrifice, you know, generally carried out by a priest or priestess dedicated to that specific temple. Uh, or you made a sacrifice at home, at, you know, at a little altar there, a little mini temple, if you will. If you didn't have that, you just, you know, made the sacrifice wherever you could and you prayed and hoped for the best. Again, a lot of variants. Greek was a varied land. Greece, Greece includes around 6,000 different islands and, and little, you know, uh, is islets scattered in the Aegean and Ionian seas. 227 of them being inhabited today. A lot of different Greek, excuse me, uh, subcultures, you know, developed in this segment of geography. This ancient religion uh, is actually having a small revival in Greece today. I mentioned that uh, real quick. Uh, about about 2,000, not a lot, but about 2,000 people are practicing what's called Hellenism, which is worship of these ancient Greek gods. It was officially recognized by the Greek government as a living religion just a few years ago, back in 2017. And, and like I imagine many ancient Greeks felt, it seems that modern believers don't actually believe in a bunch of gods necessarily hanging out up there in Mount Olympus and quarreling and fighting. They believe that the gods symbolize various aspects of human nature. And they, and they pay tributes to these gods to really kind of reconnect with their own nature and with the nature of the world around them. You know, also connecting with, you know, past traditions, connects them to various aspects of themselves that the gods represent. It's all very symbolic. Now let's talk about the man uh, responsible for creating much of our matter, modern fascination, excuse me, with the Greek gods. You know, if it wasn't for this guy and a few other guys, there probably would be no revival now because there wouldn't be enough information to go on. Talking about Homer, uh, a name that used to not be associated so strongly with an American cartoon uh, that now my mind automatically adds Simpsons to it. 
right? I, I actually hear, don't, oh, uh, when I hear the word Homer now. But we're not talking about Homer Simpson. Talk about Homer the Greek, who either wrote or is credited with having written, you know, the epic stories, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Some think he wrote these stories. Others think these stories were already being told orally long before Homer. And he just put down on the page, you know, tales ancient people have been telling for a long time. Telling with that good old game of multi-generational telephone, you know, the pre-written history pastime where many of our myths and folklore and monsters and even, you know, many of our religions of today were born. Uh, who Homer was is a mystery. Some think he was a birthday clown, pretty good at juggling, but bad at riding a unicycle and worse at making balloon animals. They say his centaurs look like snakes. Uh, there's griffins look like snakes and basically everything looked like snakes. And by some people, I, I do, of course, only mean me thinking that. Uh, serious historians, not addicted to making up weird lies for their own petty amusement, uh, think he was born sometime between the 12th and 8th centuries BCE, possibly somewhere on the coast of Asia Minor. So really, we don't know shit about this guy. Uh, we don't even know if he's one guy. Uh, you know, the works attributed by someone known as Homer may have actually been written by a group, you know, collected and just assigned the name Homer. Uh, whoever this son of a bitch was, he wrote two epic poems. Again, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and these poems have survived for almost three millennia, and they provide important insights into the early dreams and daily lives of these, you know, early Europeans. They also show in many ways how timeless the human struggle and the human condition is. The old same as it ever was. We are in many ways the same as who we were back then. Homer's poems would go on to inspire many future Greeks, such as Alexander the Great, that legendary Macedonian military conqueror born centuries later. You know, without Homer's stories to inspire Alexander, he may not have tried to conquer the entire damn world. At least the known world to him. Greeks like Alexander believed that the only life worth living, the only way to achieve immortality was to be bold. Carve out a legend for yourself. Be timeless and heroic like the gods of uh, Homer's poems. You know, please the gods with your bravery and a life spectacularly led. And you could live forever in the Elysian fields, the Isles of the Blessed. The ancient Greeks pioneered the concept of heaven, most similar to Christian heaven, actually. Other pagan groups at the time did not believe in life after death in the sense of one's ego continuing on in a world beyond this one. Now, the gods of Norse mythology, their Valhalla afterlife, which we covered back in Suck 77, similar in many ways to Greek mythology, but they wouldn't show up, uh, you know, for, for centuries. The Olympian gods mirrored Greek culture, helped shape it. The Greeks were quarrelsome. They enjoyed warring, banqueting, fornicating, revered strength, sexy beach bods, intelligence. Their gods enjoyed all of this as well. Their godly guys and gals were very human, you know, way more than most modern gods. And they watched and interacted with humanity. Sometimes they'd even come down from Mount Olympus, bang a human or two, kill a fool, help somebody out. They were, they were super hot, little different than today's gods. You know, no one, no one outside of the mentally ill are praying that Jesus might come down and sex him up thinking that there's a real chance of that happening based on some kind of historical precedence, but that is what the Greeks would think. Uh, the Greek gods, as you'll soon find out, you know, they fuck people all the time. They're pretty horny gods. Uh, mortal heroes also showed up in the tales of the gods. These heroes, some of them descended from the gods themselves, some of them half-gods, also important to the Greek myths. Achilles was a half-god hero. You know, he did not live in Olympus. He was very much born on earth, lived on earth, but his, you know, his father was a king and his mother was a sea nymph or a minor god. He was a bad motherfucker, man. Brad Pitt did such a good job playing Achilles in that movie, Troy. I don't know if you've seen that, but I was getting pumped up thinking about that movie this week. I, I will love Brad Pitt forever based on that role alone, uh, no matter what he does from here on out. Like he could, he could go to jail tomorrow for trying to kick field goals with, uh, you know, human babies instead of footballs. And I, th and I would think that was super fucked up, but I would still think he was a badass. I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I shouldn't have kicked those babies. Obviously not. But I mean, did you see that scene in Troy? 
where he fought Hector, you know, Eric Bana. Come on. That showdown was epic. Ah, I get pumped up every time I think about it. It's like the 300. You know, it's like, anyway, anyways, heroes tended to be adventurers and warriors, characterized as bold, experienced, intelligent, and fierce. You know, the perfect Greek warrior and leader. You know, you know it's like, uh, and I, I think of that movie, The 300. Well, of course, you know, the Spartans. And that's the kind of life they wanted to lead, just bold, fierce. Uh, most of the tales of the Greek gods are tragedies. Their lives reflect the, uh, the often tragic lives of the ancient Greeks. You know, they lived in a time of near constant warfare between all these various city-states and other cultures, uh, rampant communicable diseases, constant treachery as various noble families clamored and killed to increase their riches and social standings and try to carve out their own legends. It was a very bloody time. Like the lives of the Greeks, the epics of the Greek gods are filled with self-ruin, suffering, injustice, as well as numerous character flaws like extreme pride, rashness, and cruelty. Stories of the Greek gods were meant to be models of human excellence that Greek kids and adults alike could look to and try and emulate, while also finding solace and acceptance of their own flaws and shortcomings, understanding that even the gods made mistakes. And I got to say, the idea of ancient Greek excellence seemed to be uh, win at any cost. Take what you want by any means necessary. Those Greek heroes and gods, as you're going to find out, were ruthless motherfuckers. Uh, we've already met Homer. But before we delve into the most epic tales, let's meet some of the other important Greek authors, the men who breathe life into the myths of the gods and the heroes of ancient Greece in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Like I mentioned earlier, most of the ancient Greeks utilized the oral tradition to pass stories down from one generation to the next. Nearly all of the tales we know as Greek myth come from ancient poets and playwrights who finally wrote down these long-told tales. Because of the initial telephone game, there are also different versions of all of these stories you'll hear today. So if you're like, I don't know about that detail. Well, I mean, you might be thinking of a different version. There's a lot of different versions of these tales. Uh, some old tales and God descriptions vary only slightly, some tremendously. Some of the gods in the stories are brought over and adapted from completely other, you know, different cultures and other religions. The Greek gods and their tales would later morph themselves into the gods of Rome. Because the gods were born via this oral storytelling tradition, their mythology, while being, you know, super epic, is also, you know, pretty incomplete in all likelihood. These timeline authors probably left a few gods out of their tales. Some were lost to history. I'm sure there were some gods who didn't make it to the page, like, you know, Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, Triple M. More on those for sure ancient gods coming up later. I'll fill in the gaps. Uh, let's start with the Trojan War. So we'll pick up this timeline. The war believed to have occurred in, uh, occurred in some form between 1200 and 1000 BCE that Homer so famously wrote about. Depictions of this war is where the majority of Greek mythology kind of, you know, starts off. Or at least this is where the, you know, this is where the guy legends, they really get cooking on the page. The Trojan War is the setting for Homer's Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, which is the Iliad's sequel of sorts, taking place directly after the Trojan War. Uh, the story of the Trojan War is the most Famous by far of all Greek mythology and folklore to mix of mythology and historical fact. How much fact is mixed in, we'll never likely know. I'm guessing not a lot. According to Homer and other classical sources, the war began after the abduction or elopement of Queen Helen of Sparta. Sparta! By the Trojan prince Paris, a woman of legendary beauty. Helen's jilted husband, uh, <laughs> oh boy, uh, Menelaus. There we go. Just got to pause on that one for a second because I want to say, Menelaus! And that's not even close to right. Menelaus convinced us that his brother, Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, uh, convinced him to lead an, expedi uh, 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 to lead an expedition to retrieve her. 
Uh, Agamemnon is joined by the Greek heroes, Brad motherfucking Pitt, I mean Achilles, Odysseus, Nestor, and Ajax, and accompanied by a fleet of more than a thousand ships from throughout the Hellenic world. They cross the Aegean Sea to Asia Minor to lay siege to Troy and demand Helen's return by Priam, the Trojan king. The epic siege, punctuated by battles and skirmishes, including the storied deaths of the Trojan prince Hector and the nearly invincible Achilles, lasted more than 10 years until the morning the Greek armies retreated from their camp, leaving a large wooden horse outside the gates of Troy. After thinking things over, the Trojans pulled the mysterious gift into their city like a bunch of idiots. Hey, good news, you guys. Those guys have been fighting for 10 years have left. And their place is a giant wooden horse. I love a wooden horse. Yay. Do you think those bad boys have anything to do with this horse? No way, Jose. Since when did enemies give cool from horses? Especially ones we can sit on top of and say things like giddy up or hi giant horsey way. I bet some nice horsey people came as soon as the bad boys left and gave us a big horsey because they felt bad for the fightings. That sounds good to me. Let us bring it inside. Nothing fishy could be going on. And the night falls, you know, the horses opened up and a bunch of Greek warriors led by Odysseus climb out and fuck Troy up from within. And then the, those idiots were feeling pretty, you know, pretty stupid. Oh man, it's the worst horsey gift ever. What a naughty horsey full of so many bad boys stabbing and hurting me. Oh my heck. Uh, after the Trojan defeat, the Greek heroes slowly made their way home. Odysseus took 10 years to make the arduous and often interrupted journey home to Ithaca, recounted in uh, the Odyssey. Helen, whose two successive Trojan husbands were killed during the war, returned to Sparta to reign with, uh, <laughs> uh, pause again, Menelaus. And after his death, some sources say she was exiled to the island of Rhodes, where a vengeful war widow had her hanged. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, most people don't meet good ends in these stories. Even if they survive the initial fight and they usually die tragically later. Uh, what a bummer that Brad Pitt had to die. Stupid Achilles heel. His one weakness. A story always annoyed me. Dude takes an arrow to the heel, which is, he was able to be shot there because his mom didn't fucking think that through. Mother, why did you do this to me? Uh, his thoughtless goddess mother held him by his heel and dipped him into the river Styx uh, as a baby to make him immortal. The magical water of the river Styx would shield his body from any and all attacks, but she forgot to get his heel wet. Come on, lady. You never go fucking skimpy with the magic water. Goddess should know that. Don't be afraid to toss him in. Double dip him for fuck's sake. Let him swim around a bit. Let him pee in it. Let him come back out. Cannonball back in. Greek gods. So much power. So many mistakes. Uh, now back to history. As I said it before, many historians place Homer being born around 850 BCE. They have him writing within 200 years of this supposed actual Trojan War. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey then later translated into Latin between the 3rd and 4th centuries BCE. Uh, also, they were the first stories ever to be published in the Greek vernacular. Actually, they're considered the first still existing tales to be published in the history of all Western literature. Uh, the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest written story of any kind that we know of for a little bonus trivia. Uh, but did this battle really happen? Many modern scholars, historians, archaeologists have utilized both books as references for tracing the possibly real lost civilization of Troy. The ancient city of Troy in some form does seem to have actually existed, located in the northwest coast of Turkey at a site known presently as Hisalik. Uh, yeah, Hisalik. Uh, archaeological research shows this area has been inhabited for almost 4,000 years. And many a battle has been fought within its walls. Based on what archaeologists have uncovered, Troy was sacked over 10 separate times, razed to the ground, essentially, each time. After each sacking, a new city would be built uh, upon the ruins of the previous one over and over for centuries. 
Perhaps one of those cities is the city that was sacked in Homer's legend. Another and very, very important contributor to Greek mythology was uh, uh, Hesiod. Hesiod was one of the earliest Greek poets. He lived a century or two after Homer, sometime around 700 BCE. Impoverished in his youth, he moved to Boeotia, became a farmer. One of his books, The Marvelous Works and Days, gives an astonishing view of what agricultural life was like in ancient times. So yay, writers, right? History's documentarians. Think about, think about all the amazing stories we have. All because some asshole, you know, a long time ago, took the time to write that shit down. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Hesiod won an important poetry contest and quickly became a celebrated poet. I wonder if he wore a beret and dressed all in black. I had like a tight fitting, you know, long sleeve cotton turtleneck. You know, at the con- maybe snapped his fingers a lot when he's doing his poetry. I wonder if while he was preparing his poem, he worked at like a record shop or maybe an independent bookstore. Spent a lot of time, uh, you know, when he wasn't working at a locally owned fair trade coffee shop, complaining about the evils of capitalism. Maybe talking about how Castro actually had a lot of good ideas. I feel like I'm thinking of a, a different era of, of poetry. Uh, the Greeks held all sorts of poetry contests. They were way into it. It was a big part of the artistic culture of ancient Greece. Most of the writers in this timeline were poetry contest winners. Talent shows, man. They've been around since way before Last Comic Standing, The Voice, American Idol, or America's Got Talent. Hesiod would also write the uh, fullest and most important source of myths about the origin of the gods. The Theogony, a poem describing the origins and genealogies of the Greek gods. It's, it's kind of like an ancient Greek god encyclopedia. Or, or maybe even a better description, it's like a, it's like the equivalent of a monster manual for you AD&D nerds. One day, one day I'll have a time to play that beautiful game again. I'm going to force my kids to play with me. Uh, poor Hesiod. He did so much for the Greek gods, but in the end, the gods didn't seem to do much for him. Again, more tragedy. The Greek and Roman historian Plutarch, born in the first century CE, wrote that Hesiod's death was a violent one. The brothers of a woman he was claimed to have seduced brutally murdered him, beat him to death. Not even the gods can protect you when you stick your dick in a hornet's nest. Another famous contributor to the fanciful history of Greece is Aesop and his fables. Like a lot of these old Greeks, very little is known about Aesop. If we're going to make assumptions based on modern Greek stereotypes, he was probably pretty loud, yelled a lot with his family, was super hairy, especially on his back and shoulders, could make a mean euro, uh, knew how to stuff some grape leaves with some tasty meats and spices, and could do uh, pretty cool shit with goat cheese. Uh, Aesop was thought to have been born a slave around the 6th century BCE, somehow won his freedom. And after writing a number of stories, none of which have survived to this day, he's thought to have been executed. <laughs> there you go again, all these guys, uh, for some trumped up charges when he ran his mouth too freely against the people running the city of Delphi, the spiritual center of the ancient Greek world. They literally threw him off a cliff as punishment. Man, ancient Greeks, not, not afraid to use extreme violence and fans of drama and fans of tragedies. Tossing somebody off a cliff. That's a very tragic, dramatic form of execution. Really really making a statement with that, right? You're putting in a lot of extra work to make that statement. You could have just killed him in a public square, could have beheaded him, hanged him, poisoned him. No, now we got to make a big show out of it. Got to march into the top of some hill and then fucking throw him off the cliff. I wonder what your last thought is. I've always wondered that. Like for people, like if you fall off the top of a very tall building or like, like a cliff, do you have some crazy last thought? Maybe I can just push my arms out and flex my heart. I can cushion my splat. You know, it's like one kind of last self-preservation thought. I hope I never know. A couple hundred years later, the famous Greek philosophers, Plato and Socrates, gathered stories accredited to Aesop and wrote them into books that have survived until the present. He's considered the master of the Greek fable. I'm sure uh, most of you are familiar with versions of his uh, stories today. You know, the hare and the tortoise, the wolf in sheep's clothing, the shepherd boy, also known as the boy who cried wolf, the goose with the golden eggs. 
All those originate back in ancient Greece. Some historians think that Aesop may have not been a, a real person. You know, God damn it. It's so hard to tell where the truth blends with myth in these old tales. What is real? His biography is infused with Greek mythology. He was supposedly was given his gift of storytelling from the goddess Isis, mother of the earth. Isis, an interesting goddess in that she originated in Egypt. And then many of the Greeks began to adopt her. There was a fair amount of that, a fair amount of cross-pollination with local cultures where they kind of borrowed gods, gave them, you know, gave them different names. Another one of the ancient Greece's, uh, or one of ancient Greece's most prolific playwriters, a dude who wrote a lot of God tales, was a man named uh, Aeschylus. Born in 525 BCE, Aeschylus was a prolific playwright who was considered the father of the Greek tragedy, or just the father of tragedy in general. He wrote around 90 plays. Only seven have survived. His most noted work is Prometheus Bound. I've heard of it. <laughs> I know a few things here and there. I don't know what it's about, but I've heard of the title. Uh, the story of the Titan, Prometheus, being punished by Zeus for giving humanity the gift of fire. All uh, kinds of gods star in this tale. Uh, Aeschylus is also said to be the innovator of adding a second actor in a scene. Apparently before him, you know, live dramas only had one figure appearing on stage at a time must have made fully nude sex scenes especially awkward. Aeschylus was the son of a nobleman, seemed to have lived a good life, thought to have been very, very real. No Aesop, no Homer. He was a real dude who fought in the Persian Wars. And the great Greek leader Pericles was such a fan that he sponsored much of his work, made sure he was taken care of so he could focus on his writing. Aeschylus died in Sicily around 456 BCE at the age of 67. Uh, he had an odd death as well. Not necessarily super tragic, but fucking weird. Supposedly, he died when an eagle dropped a turtle on his head. And I, I'm not making that up. Okay. So, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of legend added to the story of his life. I, I, I doubt that really happened. You don't hear about too many people getting killed by turtles getting dropped on them by eagles. I've never even heard about a guy getting hurt that way. Although it is technically possible, the weird shit you find out when researching these things and digging a little deeper, there are these, these vultures, uh, the Eurasian bearded vulture, a.k.a. the lammergeier that do actually drop tortoises onto rocks to break their shells so that they can eat them. So I guess it is remotely possible that they could mistake the top of your bald head for a rock and drop it on you, which I guess wouldn't be a bad way to go out. I mean, you're outside, you're enjoying nature. Then worst case, you look up and just for a split second, you think that fucking turtle, is this, or, or did a bird just throw a turtle? And then, ow, and then dead. Uh, next on the list of authors who added to the tales of the Greek gods is a friend and contemporary of Aeschylus named Pinder. Pinder, the father of Tinder. No, he's nothing to do with Tinder. Pinder was a ly lyrical poet born around 518 BCE near the city of Thebes. Son of a distinguished family, he moved to Athens while still young and befriended Aeschylus. Pinder's work was varied and spectacular and it brought him immediate fame. A wealthy family commissioned him to write an ode to their son when he was just 20 years old. Pinder died around 438 BCE in Argus or Argos. He lived until the ripe old age of around 80 and then died peacefully. Oh, that's going to be a rare occurrence in today's tale. Pinder's poems feature the gods, Greek heroes, regular old humans interacting in a variety of adventures. And because he was Greek and the Greeks loved their legend, his death added to Greek god mythology. The legend is that 10 days before he died, the goddess Persephone, daughter of Zeus, goddess of the underworld, springtime flowers and vegetation, appeared before him and asked why he hadn't written any poems about her. And he told her to go fuck herself. He said, he didn't write any poems for silly, insecure bitches, right? And then he kicked her in the ass and he knocked out the front door. And he's like, ha ha, that's that. And, you know, and then he just walked over and he high-fived, you know, Apollo. And they all laughed about it for a long time. Uh, no. Persephone said uh, that, you know, uh, she, she would, 
come to him or no, come to him soon. Or no, I'm sorry. Persephone said that he would come to her soon. There we go. And compose a poem for her. And then he died a few days later. And then one of Pinder's female relatives claims that he dictated some verses to her in honor of Persephone after he had been dead for several days. So dude really liked to write poetry. Dead, totally dead for several days. And then, yeah, got to get back up. I got some fucking poems, right? Uh, Next up, another builder of Greek legend and myth, the great Sophocles. Heard of him? Sophocles was born near Athens around 496 BCE. He was a member of a rather wealthy family. He won his first prize when he was 28. Uh, even when, or even with uh, Aeschylus as one of his competitors, some of these guys' contemporaries, Sophocles was a priest and his devotion to his religion reflected deeply in his works. He did not question or criticize the ways of the gods. He merely presented the situation so the audience could observe human nature. He's said to have written over 120 plays. Only seven survive. And while Aeschylus is credited with adding a second actor to play, Sophocles went a step further and introduced a third. Boom! One-upped him. He died around 406 BCE. And his best-known work is Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King. In this tale, Oedipus encounters the mythical beast. And yes, this is the Oedipus of the Oedipus complex. But Oedipus uh, encounters the mythical beast, the Sphinx, a magical creature with the head and breast of a woman, the body of a lioness, and the wings of an eagle. And this is a story that introduces the Sphinx's riddle. What is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening? For those, you know, I'll give you a chance to guess, actually. A little quick pause. What is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening? And the answer, of course, is the trapeze dog. Trapeze dogs start off life as normal dogs running around four legs. Then they learn to walk on two legs. So they can delight audiences with a death-defying kind of high-wire act. And then they walk on three legs, you know, uh, later in life after they eventually fall off and uh, kind of smash up one of their legs and have to have it amputated. You, you, you knew that. <laughs> you knew it. No, the answer is man. Man crawls as a baby at the beginning of his life, then walks as an adult for the middle of his life, and then hobbles around with a walking stick towards the end. That's uh, what the Greeks believed. So I, I see it. Next on the timeline of ancient Greek myth bu- builders is Euripides. Euripides was the youngest of the three 5th century BCE Greek playwrights, the greats, the other two being Sophocles and Aeschylus. Euripides was born around 45 BCE. His parents were simple shopkeepers from the region of uh, Salamis. And I'm glad I looked that one up because I was going to say Salamis. Oh, tasty ass Salamis. That's where salami comes from, from the Salamis region. Um, Despite humble origins, he earned the admiration of his contemporaries, including the great Socrates himself. He wrote award-winning tragedies, political dramas, romantic dramas. More of his plays have survived to the present day than those of Aeschylus and Sophocles combined because his popularity was greater in his lifetime. His characters were more nuanced and complicated. He wrote of their inner motivations and desires in new ways that would influence playwrights such as Shakespeare many centuries later. And again, the Greek gods featured prominently in Euripides' works. At the opening of the play, uh, Hippolytus, Aphrodite, goddess of love, explains that Hippolytus has sworn chastity and refuses to revere her. Instead, he honors the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. This leads her to initiate a plan of vengeance on Hippolytus. Yeah, these guys, they don't handle rejection very well. You know, even if you reject them for good reasons, they're like, oh, all right. Well, good luck in the next coming weeks because bad shit's going to happen to you. And uh, eventually this all leads to Hippolytus being exiled and killed by his own father with the help of Poseidon because of some Greek god treachery. Two more authors. We'll get into more details of some of these stories later. Not all of the ancient Greek playwrights and poets wrote only tragedies about people who died. Uh, usually at the hands of those who love them. Some wrote comedies, such as Aristophanes. Aristophanes, 5th century BCE comedic poet known as the father of comedy. He was born around 446 BCE in Athens, spent much of his life 
at least early life on the island of Aegina. He was famous by the age of only 24 after writing his first play. He was like a he was like an ancient Greek Ben Affleck, right? Winning that Goodwill Hunt screenplay Oscar with Matt Damon when he's only 25. Uh, except he wasn't also an actor and he was uh, never romantically linked with the ancient Greek equivalent of Jennifer Lopez or Jennifer Garner and he and he never really struggled struggled with alcohol, alcoholism or or gambled professionally. So actually probably not a good comparison. Uh, Aristophanes lived through the Peloponnesian Wars, which lasted from 431 BCE to 404 BCE, fought between the Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta. Uh, when Athens lost, the golden age of ancient Greece was over. He was able to mock the crazy decisions of the gods and their heroes, something that really hadn't been done before. He wasn't just, you know, paying tribute to them. He's teasing them a little bit. Aristophanes based many of his comedies on the sad irony of the petty battles between mortals and their power-hungry, insane leaders and gods. In his play, The Frogs, uh, performed in Athens in 405 BCE, he tells the story of Dionysius, the god of the grape harvest, winemaking, wine, fertility, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, and theater, who, despairing of the state of Athens' tragedians, travels to Hades to bring the playwright Euripides back from the dead. Euripides had died the year before. Uh, Dionysius brings along his lowly slave, Xanthius, who is smarter and braver than the god. As the play opens, Xanthius and Dionysius argue over what kind of jokes Xanthius can use to open the play. For the first half of the play, Dionysius routinely makes critical errors, forcing Xanthius to improvise in order to protect his master and prevent Dionysius from looking like an idiot. But this only allows Dionysius to make even more mistakes and look even dumber. Edgy shit, right? Mocking religion, mocking Greek heroes, critical of Greek culture and its leaders. He was like a regular Lenny Bruce. He was, like a, he was like a Bill Hicks who was fucking way into hummus, right? For you stand-up fans, except, except more popular in life. However, at the end of his life, when Sparta defeated Athens, the political climate changed and he had to uh, stop making fun of political leaders if he didn't want to be horribly executed. Fucking Spartans, not known for their senses of humor. Aristophanes died around the age of 60 in 386 BCE, shortly after the production of his last surviving play, Plautus, or Plautus, like Pluto's. Uh, the Greek author for today's timeline is the poet, or the next Greek author, excuse me, for today's timeline is the poet uh, Apollonius. Uh, another word that I'm glad there was a guide for because I was way off on this one. I think I was calling it Apollonius. It's Apollonius. Uh, the most famous work written by Apollonius of Rhodes was his magnificent Argonautica, which details the story of Jason and the quest for the Golden Fleece. And what a random name. All of these names, ancient names, and like they're all very Greek sounding to me. And then there's just like this random Jason thrown in, which just doesn't sound Greek at all to me. I mean, I guess it could be, but it's like, like Jason is as random to me as like, you know, Bobby or just, or Ted, Jimmy, Jimmy in the quest for the golden fleece, Ed in the quest for the golden fleece. Uh, we know almost nothing about this guy. Uh, Apollonius was an Alexandrian, probably, whose lifespan from roughly 295 to 215 BCE, maybe, he spent the majority of his latter years in the island of Rhodes. Initially, he was kind of thought to be a low-rent Homer, overly derivative of the ancient master. But then later, scholars decided he was actually an important original author. The story of Jason and the Golden Fleece is sort of a prequel to Homer's Iliad, taking place before the Trojan War. A hero named Jason shows up in his hometown of uh, Il Ilcus. Ilcus, there we go. Some of these words are just fucking, I hate them so much. Uh, it's I-O-L-C-U-S. No, thanks. Eolcus, my ugh, uh, with the game plan. Uh, so he shows up here with this game plan. Regain the throne stolen from his father by his uncle, uh, Pelias. King Pelias tells Jason he's happy to vacate his throne in exchange for Jason bringing him the golden fleece, which was the fleece, you know, or shorn wool 
of the magical golden-wooled winged ram, Chrysomalos. No big whoop, right? Just, just find the wool of a winged, magical, golden-wooled ram. Uh, did I mention this wool was guarded at all times by a ferocious dragon? Mm-hmm. Uh, the wool was kept in the faraway land of Calchas, so it's going to take a bit to knock this errand out. Jason takes off, assembles the most star-studded team of heroes Greece had ever seen to accompany him aboard his magical ship, the Argo, a ship protected by the goddess Hera, the goddess of women, marriage, family, and childbirth, sister-wife of Zeus. Yes, sister-wives. Not the FLDS kind. Nope. A sister and a wife. Incest. So much incest in history. A lot of it in today's tale. Uh, aboard the Argo, Jason and his crew, the Argonauts, have all kinds of sweet adventures, like battling harpies and giants, maybe even lizard people. Don't quote me on the lizard people, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did fight at least one reptilian, a nunaki. If only they could have killed them, right? Damn you lizards. Uh, when Jason and the Argonauts finally arrived in Colchis, King Eetes tells Jason he can have the fleece. Right after, Jason jerks him off for at least 10 minutes, but not more than 15 minutes. And he has to do it in front of the Argonauts for the deal to be real. And Jason doesn't love this proposal because he's, you know, he's, he's not gay. He doesn't have a problem with it, but he's just, you know, personally not gay. And uh, then King Eetes explains that it's not about sexuality, right? It's just, uh, you know, it's not, a, not at all. It's, like, it's, like, it's a public hand job. It's just a, a local tradition, a sign of allegiance to the king, respect for the customs of his land. He tells him it's not like they have to make eye contact or anything. You won't even get, you know, that hard. So he doesn't see what the big deal is. So Jason accepts. He's traveled a long ways. He and his men are weary. So he takes the king's personal royal scepter of sorts. He gets to work. After a few minutes, he starts thinking about how it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, he just, you know, he wishes his men were staring at him. It kind of feels like they're judging him. But it's not like he and King Aedes, you know, are even looking at each other. And he's pretending he's just smoothing out a summer sausage, which is something that straight guys do a lot, you know. But then after about five minutes, King Aetes pretends to slip. And he starts to fall down and he grabs Jason's head for, you know, like, like he's grabbing for balance. And that's when he kind of slips his erect penis right into Jason's mouth. And Jason, he doesn't care for it. But he doesn't want to let go because what if the clock resets? They didn't really go over that part. And he has to start over from the beginning. And then before Jason can verbally protest, King E.T. says, if you can get me to finish in less than five, you know, uh, uh, you know, more, more, more minutes, you can just be done. Like you don't have to, you don't have to go to the contractually obligated time if you can get me to finish like right away. And then Jason thinks, I mean, that's probably somehow a little bit less gay than just continuing to jerk him off for, you know, God knows how many more minutes. And Jason doesn't like it, but he goes ahead and he gives the guy a blowjob. But then King E.T. says it, it would help kind of speed things up just for practical purposes if he could also put Jason's penis in his mouth. So in front of the Argonauts, you know, uh, none of that happened. God, I hope at least one new listener thought just what I said just might have been true. Just might have been true. I know that went on for way too long, but that's what makes it funny for me. Because I picture at least one poor listener at first being like, Get the, what the fuck? And then it goes on for a while. And it's like, no. And then it keeps going on. It's like, really? I mean, I guess there's, you know, I guess it was a different time. Uh, no, here's what really happened. King Aetes asked Jason to completely... Uh, to complete, excuse me, three nearly impossible tasks. With the help of Medea, the daughter of Aetes, Jason completes the task, grabs the fleece, and Medea sails back to Greece. Woohoo! Everybody wins. Hail Nimrod. Uh, and then a few adventures later, Jason and his pals are marching into Iolcus with the golden fleece. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, got it. Hail Zeus. Hail Lucifina, I think. So that's a little sampling of the you know most noted authors of ancient Greek mythology and some of their most famous work. Sorry, not sorry for ruining Jason the Argonauts for you. Or maybe, you know, if that lined up with a fantasy of yours, maybe you just made it the best story you've ever heard. You're welcome. And, uh, and shout out again to Jason for having such a great name, such a fun name to pronounce. Now let's hop out of this time stuck timeline and really dig in to these Greek gods. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. 
Now that we've gone over some of the written origins of the gods, let's really dig into their mythology after a quick word from today's first sponsor. Today's time suck is brought to you by Quip. What actually makes a better toothbrush? Industrial strength power, multiple modes, black magic, Brad Pitt building it himself by hand. If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you it's less about the brush, more about how you use it. That's why you need Quip. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist recommended two minutes, just two minutes of gum and sweet chomper massaging and your teeth are clean and happy and sparkly. And Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. Quip, Quip makes brushing something you actually want to do twice a day and good habits, you know, matter when you're living a, living a healthy life. I've been using my Quip for, for months now and I love it. It's very affordable. I keep sending new brush heads and batteries so I have no excuse not to have fresh, clean chompy chomps. And it tells me to switch to a new section of my mouth every 30 seconds. Only a robot brushing my teeth, you know, and gently caressing me uh, would make it any easier. Quip starts at just $25 and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash timesuck. This is a simple way to support this show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquipquip.com slash timesuck to get your first refill free. Easy link to this deal in today's episode description and in the sponsor section button of the TimeSuck app. I get that quip button there. Now let's get weird. We're gonna meet some very strange and far from perfect gods and goddesses, strange beasts, any cryptozoologist would die to see. To understand the gods, it helps to understand where they lived. Let's hop on the back of a griffin and soar to the top of Mount Olympus. At the center of the earth, at least uh, earth as the Greeks once knew it, towered Mount Olympus, the predecessor to Vikings Valhalla where the gods ate ambrosia, drank nectar, and held court. Sounds awesome, but what the shit is ambrosia? I'm assuming they're probably not talking about, you know, uh, that awesome, you know, 70s and early 80s yacht rock band who sang smooth adult contemporary hits like How Much I Feel. That's how much I feel, feel for you, baby. How much I need, well, I need your touch. How much I live. I live for your love, and that's how much, that's how much. You get it? You fucking get it. That's, we all know Ambrosia, right? Uh, Ambrosia in the sense of the Greek gods. Dining in Olympus was a magical source of nourishment that bestowed longevity, even immortality upon whoever consumed it. Wish ham and cheese Hot Pockets did that, but I'm pretty sure they reduce your odds of achieving immortality pretty greatly. As do, sadly, maple bars and zingers and Reese's Pieces and movie theater popcorn. And basically everything except for wild salmon, kale, and acai berries. Uh, ambrosia was brought to Olympus by doves, so it must not have been super dense and heavy like meatloaf or potato salad. Bummer. No one really knows what it's supposed to look like or taste like. Some historians think it was uh, based on honey. It's supposed to be honey or some form of God form of honey. Some think maybe they just thought it actually was honey. So I guess that's what you're supposed to eat to live forever. You know, just a shit ton of honey, which sounds terrible, actually. It doesn't sound filling or satisfying. I'm pretty sure not kidding. That would be better off eating only Hot Pockets as opposed to eating only honey. You know that honey has 17 grams of sugar and around 65 calories in every tablespoon? That's the kind of weird shit I end up finding out when I do these episodes. So if you had one cup of honey, you'd get to learn 72 grams of sugar, which is more than the American Heart Association says you're supposed to have in a week. Maybe the rules are different for the Greek God hearts. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a Greek God heart doctor. Ham and cheese Hot Pockets have around 10 grams of sugar each. So you'd have to eat 27 Hot Pockets to get that much sugar. I've been talking for a long time about Hot Pockets. I shouldn't because I don't, I don't think they're that great. Enough about Ambrosia and Nectar. Let's talk more about uh, where Olympus supposedly was. 
Sometimes Olympus was thought of as being located at the top of the real mountain Olympus in Greece, tallest mountain in the country at uh, just over 9,500 feet. Located in the Olympus range of mountains in northern Greece, roughly 275 miles north of Athens on the border of the Greek administrative districts of Macedonia and Thessaly. In other eras and by other Greeks, Mount Olympus was not thought of as being accessible by mortals going on a hike. You know, it was like some mountain that you couldn't see. It was a lofty region up out of you know reach, up in the heavens, almost completely, you know, uh, unable to be traveled to by humans unless you were a hero. You could sneak up there or aided by one of the gods somehow or some mythical creature. A uh, little more magical ge- Greek geography below Olympus, around the earth ran a limitless river called Ocean. On the northern shores of the river Ocean lived the Hyperbians, a fortunate race of giants who never knew care, toil, illness, or old age. This community was isolated from the rest of the world, being unapproachable by land or sea. It enjoyed perpetual light and warmth. Nice. Need to rent me a retirement condo there. Live amongst the Hyperbians or hyper Hyperboreans. There we go, Hyperboreans. Uh, to the west of this river lay uh, Hesperia, Hesperia, the land of the evening star, where the golden apples of Hera were guarded by the dragon Laden and by the seven immortal maidens, the uh, Hesperides. Can you imagine how good a pie would taste made out of those apples? Dutch apple pie with maybe some brown sugar crumbles on top? Maybe a little ambrosia drizzled upon it? When the dragons are guarding them, they're not going to, you know, guard fucking shitty, shitty apples. They're all rotten. Tastes like vinegar cider. Uh, the western lands and seas were populated with monstrous beings like the Cyclopses, race of rural one-eyed giants. There were the cannibalistic Lestragonians, who were some other kind of giant thought to be from Sicily. There were the sirens, sexy naked bird women who liked to play leers and harps and lure sailors to their deaths, sending them crashing into the rocks. There were the Scylla and the Charybdis. Scylla was a six-headed monster who, when the ships passed, swallowed one sailor for each head. All right. Uh, while uh, Charybdis was an enormous whirlpool that threatened to swallow entire ships whole. So you're trying to, you know, you're trying to avoid the whirlpool and then you get, you know, you fucking head eaten off by one of those six-headed monster thingies. It sounds like a terrible way to travel. The Titan Atlas also resided in the West, farther West, uh, lay those Elysian fields, the Isles of the Blessed we spoke of earlier. That's where certain favored mortals would go when they died. It's kind of like basically like the Greek god heaven for mortals. Uh, in the far south were the Ethiopians, a lucky, virtuous people with whom the gods frequently banqueted. It's thought that these Ethiopians may have been the Egyptians, who for a time also worshipped the Greek gods, especially Zeus. In the east were the barbarians, all the non-Greek-speaking races to whom the Greeks felt the blessings of civilization were unknown. Ancient China, Korea, other Asian kingdoms would strongly disagree with that. But to be fair to the ancient Greeks, they, did, they had no idea that those people existed. Uh, beneath the flat-ish disk of the ancient Greek earth was... Tartarus, where the Titans were confined, Tartarus was a vast nebulous realm of darkness. Tartarus is similar to the Christian version of hell, or for fans of time suck mythology, it's Nimrod's butthole, as we learned way back in the Kurt Cobain suck. Only suffering and torment awaits in Nimrod's butthole, just like Tartarus. Nimrod's butthole, you're so close to his heavenly ball sack, but so far away. Between Earth and Tartarus was the underworld kingdom of Hades, land of the dead. Hades, the ruler of the dead. The entrance to this realm was guarded by, uh, uh, Sir Cerberus. Cerberus, there we go. A three-headed dog. Probable ancestor of demigod Bojangles. More on Bojangles later. And once the departed spirits passed on, they had to be ferried across the river Styx by Karen, a foul-tempered boatman with the name of a middle-aged office manager. Several pronunciation guides. It's spelled Sharon, but they say it's pronounced Karen. All right, Karen. Easy, Karen. Easy on the fucking dead hell talk. 
Uh, the place was thought of as a cavernous and dim and joyless abode in which the dead gradually faded into nothingness. But at least it wasn't bad as Tartarus. Some guy probably sold that t-shirt in Hades. This ain't no Elysian fields, but at least I'm not in Tartarus. So that's the basic lay of the mythical land. Uh, and it changes again from story to story. You know, sometimes Tartarus, for example, is a god. Sometimes it's a place, sometimes both. They wrote a lot of stories. Now let's find out where these gods came from, where their reign began. The Greek pantheon of immortals had eight different classes. The original generation of gods, the first class known as the primordial gods. Cronus, the old god of time. Gia, the old god of the earth. Just a few examples. Hail Nimrod. Nimrod belongs to this class. I can feel it in my meat sack bones. Second class of gods were the nature spirits. Examples were the uh, freshwater, you know, Naiades, various female water nymphs who watched over fountains, wells, springs, streams, brooks, other bodies of fresh water. There were the forest dryads, which were young women forest nymphs protecting trees and shrubs and shit. There were the beast-loving Greek satyrs, male nature spirits with the ears and tails of a horse, as well as permanent, exaggerated boners. Not kidding. This isn't one of my nonsensical dick jokes. Greek satyrs had enormous hard dicks. Uh, early representations, you know, like little sculptures of them show them having like horse legs, probably where the horse god comes from. Uh, later depictions show them with human legs beginning in the 6th century BCE. Most depictions show them with big old bones, big old weens. Um, later, the goat horns would be added to their heads. They would become associated with Dionysius, the god of wine, fertility, revelry, and more the party god. And the satyrs like to drink wine, party, get down, frolic. You know, it's sexually chased after both nymphs and human women. These satyrs had mane-like hair, bestial faces, snub noses, always shown naked. In early Greek mythology, uh, they were pretty rapey. Not kidding. Ladies had to really watch themselves in the forests of Greece. Holy shit, there was a lot of rapey stuff out there. These creepy critters didn't just have, you know, the big old horse dicks for show. If you were able to escape, the satyr would just find some poor animals to take their sexual urges out on. Or they just jerk off in the forest. Not, again, not kidding. I guess there's a lot of, uh, you know, stories about them just jerking off in the woods. Pulling a chikatilo, you know. What, what is big deal? I jerk like satyr. I basically just modern satyr. People not understand. And that's why I make angry rustling, rustling moves for me to find peace. For, not, for being judged. For being satyr. Uh, there were other creatures like the marine tritons. The merman soldiers of Poseidon. God of the sea. Third class was the spirits that affected the mind. The fourth class of immortals consisted of the gods who controlled the forces of nature. The fifth class were the Olympian gods. Like Zeus, you know, governed over the universe. Sixth class were the spirits of the constellations, which circled the heavenly night sky. The seventh class, semi-divine creatures like giants, dragons, centaurs, sirens. And then the final class were the heroes who are also sometimes worshipped. We'll dig into more examples of gods from these various classes soon enough. So how did these gods get here? Let's look, let's look at some Greek creation myths. Let's get real fucking weird. There are several different versions of how the universe came to be according to the Greeks. This is my favorite based on the writings of uh, Hesiod. In the beginning, there was only chaos, which was an empty void. But then a cosmic egg formed out of nothing. How? Don't worry about it. What's a cosmic egg? You ask, you're asking too many questions. What matters is not how this egg got there, but what first hatched out of it. This enormous egg laid by chaos, or perhaps it was the womb of chaos, or just some kind of space. It's kind of vague. Chaos was assigned feminine characteristics, though. This, this chaos first gave birth to, to Gia, the Earth, then to Tartarus, the great region beneath the Earth, then to Eros, the shining god of love and sexy time. Chaos also birthed Erebus, the darkness of the netherworld, world, and Nyx, the goddess of night, darkness over the Earth, 
Then Erebus slept with Nyx, who gave birth to Ether, the heavenly light, and today, the earthly light. Later, Nyx all alone produced such beings as doom, fate, death, sleep, dreams, nemesis, and a long list of other atrocities that terrorize humans. Nyx, ah, daughter of chaos. He was a real dark doom and gloom motherfucker. And Nyx may have been uh, based on Lucifina. Yes, Lucifina, one of the most ancient gods, older than the earth. Lucifina may have influenced the mythological creation of the other Greek gods we'll soon talk about, such as Aphrodite, Greek goddess of love and beauty. Lucifina embraced both beauty and chaos. In fact, the beauty of chaos. Lucifina could be dark and vengeful. She could distract and harm, but also help. Mostly, she represented the darkness that exists within us all. Nihilism wrapped in hedonism. A darkness that isn't always bad. When used for good, Lucifina reminds you to live for the now. Enjoy the now. There's merit in that. Live for the present with no thought of the hang-ups of the past, the consequences of the future. Hail Lucifina. Hail the wisdom of her joyous hedonism. Hail her passionate embrace of life. Lucifina's presence also felt in Dionysius, the Greek god of revelry and wine and sexuality. Some sources Lucifina uh, uh, say that Lucifina rivaled Zeus in her power. May have been more powerful, but then male writers erased her from the history books, afraid of both her powerful sexuality and independence. You know, besting male gods in both physical battles, battles and battles of sexual conquest. So they had to replace her with, you know, helpless virgin archetypes. By some sources, I mean only me. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe, maybe the ancient spirit of, uh, you know, Lucifina is very real. Maybe it just channels me to bring her to the present. Anywho, ha, anywho, back to the ancient Greece uh, stuff before I go full on cult leader. Uh, soon Gia, with help from no man, gives birth to Uranus. And now this sometimes pronounces Uranus. I don't like to say that. I like to say Uranus. Uh, the starry sky and to uh, Oria, the mountains, also to Pontus, the sea. How? Well, she used some God magic egg spells or something. Don't. Don't ask too many questions again. Just go with it. Uranus then invented the Oedipus complex by becoming Gia's husband and equal as he did cover her on all sides. More incest. The world was created incestuously, just like Adam and Eve. Every good creation story starts with some close family fucking. Uh, this primordial couple, the sky and the earth, produced the 12 titans, the three towering wheel-eyed cyclopses, and the three terrible hecatonchires with 50 heads and 100 arms apiece. This... This particular monster uh, shows up from time to time. It didn't seem to become super popular in the stories. Not a lot of murals with this bad boy painted on them, you know? No sculptures have ever been found of these bastards because no one has a fucking clue how you're supposed to fit that many heads and that many arms in some kind of humanoid body, which is how they're depicted in, you know, modern illustrations. Heck, a tonkeries just doesn't feel like a really well-thought-out beast, to be totally honest. Just like some ancient storyteller getting caught up in a passion, you know, storytelling moment. And the monster had, had many heads. How many heads did it have, great oracle? Why, it had uh, uh, 50. Yes, 50 heads on one body. Ooh, and how many arms did it have, wise oracle? Oh, arms, well, it uh, uh, 100. It had 100 arms. Mm -hmm, yeah, arms in every direction. It had arms sprouting out from its, you know, its uh, chest and back and, I guess, stomach and a couple of arms on its neck and legs. It had a couple, couple of leg arms. <laughs> yeah. Had arms, had, had arm arms coming out of its arms and arms sporting out from its groin and buttocks and head arms like a unicorn kind of horn coming out of its... Anyway, let's move on to the, the next monster. Uh, the Cyclopses were described as wheel-eyed because their single eye was the size of a large wagon wheel. The word Cyclops even comes from words relating to wagon wheels. A little, little trivia there, too. Uh, not sure why those guys didn't get two eyes. I guess, you know, maybe one big eye is scarier than two or something. Uh, Uranus was also a massive asshole. Uh, pun not intended, actually. 
He was a harsh husband and a shitty father. Pun still not intended. Kind, kind of intended. Uh, each of uh, Hecatuncheries, Hecatuncheries, they hated him. And he hated them in return. And in his anger, Uranus did what all angry fathers do. And he pushed these sons of bitches back into his wife's womb and kept them there, which is, sounds painful and gross. I hope no human maniac has ever tried that, right? I told you I didn't want the baby. You push him back in there. You push him back here and I'll push him back in myself. Uh, Gia writhed in pain at this, as I imagine one would. Then plotted revenge upon her husband's son. She made herself a flint sickle, called upon her other children to avenge her. Uh, the one she wasn't fucking, the good kids. The Titans and the Cyclopses recoiled in fear of their father. Only the last-born Titan, Cronus, god of time, was daring enough to attack his father. And then that night, when Uranus came to lie with Gia, the crafty Cronus was hiding in wait, waiting to watch his parents get ready to make love like a good son does. And then before Pop could do the deed, he sneaks out of his hiding spot, grabs his father by his dick, and severs his ball sack with his mom's sickle, which almost couldn't be just more gross. This, you know, and painful. And I guess fair pay- payback for the vagina stuffing that Gia had already endured. As the blood fell from his sack to the earth, the Furies were created. Three ancient Greek goddesses of vengeance and retribution who punished men for crimes against the natural order. The ash tree nymphs also created the wives of the silver race of men and mothers of the bronze, the third generation of mankind, the ones who nursed their sons on the honey sap of the ash and armed them with spears crafted from the wood of their trees. A new tribe of a hundred giants also created. Who knew so many creatures were hiding in dad's sack? Uh, Cronus, after slicing his father's balls, then cut off his dad's penis, took that clean wing, heaved it into the sea. And from the foam rose Aphrodite, beautiful goddess of love created by dong foam. And then she floated along and stepped ashore at Cyprus. So that's how babies are made, you know? I did, I, I, I had it all mixed up in my head. You just got cut off your dad's dick, and you got tossed into the sea, and get some babies. The mutilated Uranus either then withdrew forever from the earth. Uh, well, <laughs> sorry, didn't either. The, mut- the mutilated Uranus uh, w- withdrew from the earth, but not before promising that, that Cronus and the other Titans would be punished. Uh, yeah. I'd like to think that I would at least depart uh, with some threats if I just had my genitals cut off. Cronus then established his reign by confining the Cyclopses and the Hecatuncheries, those 50-headed, 100-armed abominations, to Tartarus. And then, like any good ruler, he married his sister and got to fucking. Under his lordship, Cronus and his sister Rhea produced many offspring. However, Cronus could not allow his own children to survive, for both Gia and Uranus had prophesied that Cronus would be supplanted by his son. Mm Mm-hmm. Forgot to mention that. The old ball slicer done got cursed. A lot of cursing in the Greek legends. So when Rhea gives birth to the gods and goddesses, Cronus just fucking eats them. Mm-hmm. Take that curse. You didn't see that coming, did you? Ha-ha. <laughs> Go ahead and curse me. I'll just eat my own babies. Ha-ha. <laughs> I'm smarter than that. Now pass the salt. I need to season up these little loopholes. Uh, Cronus then swallows uh, Hestia, uh, Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, shortly after each is born. Just eats his babies. And Rhea, as you can imagine, she doesn't like it. She doesn't appreciate her brother-husband eating all her niece and nephew babies. So she seeks to have her sixth child, Zeus, hidden from his deicidal father. So she bears uh, Zeus in secret and then gives Cronus a stone wrapped in swaddling bands to swallow in his place. And it worked because apparently these old Greek gods were super fucking dumb. Can't stress that enough. (laughs) They fall for a lot of weird stuff. 
Cronus just eats a big rock and thinks, yum, tastes like the baby. Uh, Zeus was then raised to manhood by a bunch of sexy nymphs on Crete, which may help explain his later very aggressive sex drive. Cronus, meanwhile, is growing older. Bummer. What's the point of being a god if he's going to get old anyways? So Zeus seeks advice on how to defeat his old father from Metis, a Titanus, cousin of Zeus, the mother of wisdom and deep thought, and later first spouse of Zeus. The Titans and Titanesses were the 12 children of Uranus and Gia, six males, six female, Cronus being one of the boys, Metis, daughter of one of the female Titans, Oceanus. And anyways, Metis provides or prepares a special potion that induces vomiting and gives it to Zeus. Disguised as a cupbearer, somehow they have cupbearers out in the cosmos, wherever the hell they're at right now. A lot of the stuff not explained. These characters just show up and you're like, oh, okay, I guess, guess they're here now. Uh, anyway, Zeus gives his potion to Cronus, who vomits up Zeus's brothers and sisters, as well as the stone Rhea had fed him. <laughs> uh, the vomit-covered gods were, of course, alive and totally unhurt. Apparently, uh, Cronus's digestive system didn't really work that well. Uh, together with Zeus, they, they battle with Cronus to feed him and then bind him in Tartarus. And Zeus's triumph, however, is far from secure. The other titans, with the exception of Prometheus and Oceanus, rebel against this new wannabe ruler of the gods. For 10 years, a war rages on. Cronus's fellow titans, Atlas, Hyperion, father of the sun, moon, and dawn, Creus, god of the heavenly constellations, and many others battle the new gods of Zeus, Hestia, uh, Demeter, Hades, Poseidon, and more. But the titans, even without Cronus, were formidable, and neither the gods nor the titans could secure a decisive victory. But Zeus would turn the war in his favor when he went down to Tartarus and released the Cyclopses and those hundred-handed, you know, way too many-headed monsters as well. And the Cyclopses awarded Zeus their weapons of thunder and lightning. And the Hecatuncheries pelted the Titans with boulders, which then secured the victory for Zeus. Ah, take that, gods. Have fun catching so many boulders thrown by all those arms. Uh, Zeus then imprisoned the Titans in Tartarus and he condemned the rebel Atlas to stand forever at the edge of the world and bear the heavens on his shoulders. Gia was enraged at the downfall of her children, so she decides to have some sexy fun time with her brother Tartarus. Gives birth to one last monster, Typhoeus, a dragon with a hundred heads that never rested. A lot, of, a lot of even heads and arm situations in these old Greek gods. How many heads? Was it 93? No, no, no. No, it was a hundred. You have to have a hundred. Oh, Tartarus, this confusing person place thing. Uh, terrified by, uh, you know, this uh, dragon, most of the gods flee, uh, which is interesting. Even gods are afraid of dragons. I guess, I guess you know, one with a hundred heads is probably, you know, probably extra scary. And this Typhius, uh considered the deadliest creature in Greek mythology. And of course, its attributes change based on whoever's writing about this dragon. Sometimes it's a hundred heads, sometimes 30. Sometimes the heads spit fire. Sometimes the heads are a variety of monster heads. Sometimes they're lion, bulls, wolves, bears, leopards. You know, it's part of why he's so scary. You never know which heads you're going to get with him. Uh, Zeus refuses to flee from the monster and he's captured and confined by the Titans. Uh-oh, will our hero meet his demise? Of course not. Zeus is released by his son Hermes, god of trade, commerce, thieves, athletes, and more. Zeus finally destroys the divine dragon with a barrage of lightning bolts and then buries it under Mount Etna in Sicily. So don't go digging around Mount Etna for fuck's sake. You don't want to risk unearthing some crazy many-headed dragon leopard monster thing. But as soon as Zeus and his fellow Olympians take power, and they're basing themselves in Mount Olympus now, others try and kick them off the throne. It's a real bummer about thrones. As soon as you get on it, someone's trying to take it from you. The giants who had sprouted from Uranus's blood, if you recall. Ah, that's so weird. Uh, they weren't Zeus fans. They didn't like his name or something. Maybe that dragon thing was their friend. 
So they lay siege to Olympus by piling mountain upon mountain uh, in, a, in an attempt to scale it, which is a pretty cool giant trick, right? And that's when you know you're super strong, when you can turn mountains into stairs. These giants were tough and required all the prowess of the Olympians and the assistance of the half-mortal Heracles to subdue and kill the giants. Half, having vanquished the Titans, the dragon Typhius and the giants, the, the uh, rule of the Olympians is now undisputed. And yes, humans are already showing up. Yes, the gods are fucking them. Heracles was the son of Zeus, an immortal woman. He was a hero and a god. He became the gatekeeper of Olympus, god of strength, heroes, sports, oracles, divine protector of mankind after he died. There you go. That's one version of how the Greek gods came to be. That version of the creation was taken largely from Hesiod, that Greek poet we spoke of earlier, who really did more than anyone else to catalog and define the gods that Homer had written about previously. Now let's back up a bit and see what the legends say about the origins of mankind. How did Heracles' human ancestors show up? Well, the clever titan Prometheus, god of foresight, and his brother Epimetheus, god of hindsight, were spared imprisonment in Tartarus, or yeah, uh, Tartarus, because they had kept their neutrality in the war between the Olympians and the Titans. And uh, this would lead directly to the first race of men. According to one tradition, Prometheus shapes man out of mud. And then the goddess Athena, goddess of wisdom, courage, inspiration, civilization, law, justice, strategic warfare, math, strength, strategy, the arms, craft, skills, uh, they, they, they a lot of talents. They would be gods over a lot of things. She breathed life into this first man. Once man was created, Prometheus allows his dim-witted brother, Epimetheus, to dispense various qualities to the animals and man. So Epimetheus begins by giving the, the best traits to the animals. Swiftness, courage, cunning, stealth, all that stuff. He gives to a variety of, you know, like leopards and bears and stuff. And he winds up with nothing good left to give to man. Fucking Epimetheus! I can be as fast as a cheetah, you stupid shit face. Could have the courage of a lion, but you wasted it. Ugh. Prometheus took over. And at least uh, gave man an upright posture like the gods, and that gift enabled man to survive. Thanks, Prometheus. Appreciate not having to crawl, even if I am slow. Uh, Prometheus had little love for the Olympians, who had banished his fellow titans to the depths of Tartarus. Uh, Tartarus. His primary affection was for his new meat sacks, and he disobeyed direct god orders to help us out. He's our friend, uh, because gods will be gods, and they demand sacrifices to be made to them, just like Nimrod's cocker spaniels. Man was now commanded to make animal sacrifices to the gods, but humans were allowed to keep a portion of the sacrifice for themselves. And then and Zeus got to decide what that portion was going to be. So Prometheus, to trick Zeus, made two piles. In one pile, he wrapped bones and juicy fat, and he hid the good meat under a pile of ugly hide. When it was time to choose, Zeus chose the, the bones wrapped in the fat, which really pissed him off when he found out what happened. And so in retaliation, Zeus deprived mankind of fire. But Prometheus loved us little meat sacks, and he knew he needed some fire to cook the meat. You know, not everyone can live on extremely rare meat all the time. So he lit his torch with his son, carried it to the earth, and gave it to man against Zeus's orders. Zeus was livid when he found out. Prometheus was really chapping his ass, really disrespecting him. You know, he, he didn't zap a dragon monster with a bunch of thunderbolts to be disrespected. So he created a devious plan. He ordered that his son, uh, oh man, Hephaestus, I may say his name differently later. I, I missed this one uh, spot here. But anyway, this god of fire, metalworking, stone masonry, forges uh, an art of, the sculpt of sculpture. He orders him to create a mortal of stunning beauty. And when uh, Hephaestus had done so, the gods gave this new creature a number of gifts. But Hermes gave it a deceptive heart and a lying tongue. And yes, this was the first woman, Pandora. And according to the legends, a worse calamity never befell man. Oh my heck, gosh dang. 
Misogyny, alive and well in ancient times. Women, ah, getting slandered as being tricksters in both Christianity and Greek mythology. Eve, you know, she fucked up things for dudes. Pandora, uh, she would keep fucking things up for guys. Uh, it's almost like all this stuff was written by dudes. Uh, Prometheus had warned his brother, Epimetheus, about accepting gifts from Zeus. Yet when Epimetheus saw this radiant creature, Pandora, he could not resist her. Hey, Lucifina. Pandora had brought with her a jar that she was forbidden to open. But she couldn't resist opening things and her curiosity won out. She opened the lid and then a multitude of evils flew out and scattered over the world to afflict man forever. Damn it, Pandora. Between you and Eve, you really ruined a lot of stuff. No more living in paradise. Now we got evil stuff floating around. What evils, you ask? Well, in some legends, it's not specified. In others, generally, uh, like sadness, poverty, disease, and death. Uh, For Prometheus, Zeus reserved a special punishment. Before any of this fire bullshit, Zeus was made aware that Prometheus knew the identity of a god who would one day dethrone him. Zeus wanted to know who that god was. And in defiance, Prometheus refused to tell him. So Zeus had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Caucasus. Those mountains, one of the pillars supporting the world. Um, also, you know, that mountain range that divides Europe and Asia, stretching between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And every day Zeus sent an eagle to peck out the Titan's liver, which would grow back again every night. And then this agony was drawn out for ages. And that is the story of how Prometheus made man and how a woman uh, ruined everything and how Prometheus then got chained to a rock. Uh, According to another story, the gods created man and existed on earth while the Titan Cronus ruled. There'll be five ages of man in this story, and then we'll move on after this. This, uh, The first race of men lived in complete happiness. During that golden age, men were free from suffering, labor, old age. Dying was pain-free and as easy as falling asleep. Ooh, okay. Um, Over over time, this race died out, but their spirits remained to protect the following men from evil. Thanks thanks for your spirits, golden guys. I was super thoughtful. Uh, The gods then created the men of the Silver Age, who sucked compared to their predecessors. These men would remain children for 100 years. They loved the number 100. They remained children for 100 years under the dominance of their mothers. Seriously, not adding that. It was the age of the beta male, the mama boy. When these mac and cheese and corn dog eating Capri Sun drinking basement dwellers finally matured, they quickly died off because they were idiots. who didn't know how to take care of themselves. So Zeus put an end to this terrible age of men. Next, Zeus created the men of the Bronze Age out of ash, ash spears. These men were mighty, tall, ferocious, They worked with metals. They proved to be a violent race of warriors. And in the end, so violent, they completely destroyed one another through warfare. The next period was the heroic age, a time of notable heroes and deeds. Famous heroes like Heracles and Jason, Theseus, Odysseus, and the great men in the Trojan War all existed during the heroic age. Brad Pitt! As a tribute to his obvious favorite, Zeus established those sweet-ass heavenly Elysian fields as a resting place for their spirits after death. Still optimistic that he'd make a better man, Zeus went back to the drawing board, created the men of the Iron Age. According to the Greeks, they were the worst race ever to appear on Earth and one destined to become totally depraved. And you and I are part of that age. Damn it. No more Heracles and Achilles-type heroes for us Iron Folk. Hard work, trouble, pain, weariness. That's, that's our fate in this group. Damn it. Uh, the gods become so frustrated by our noises, smells, and shitty cowardly deeds that they'd abandon us. That's why they're not around anymore. Now, I've, I've, been, I've been pissed off this entire last week thinking about how all these gods abandoned us. Actually, I'm glad. I'm glad they left us alone. As you've already seen uh, and will continue to see going forward, they're not mentally stable. The Greek gods are utter maniacs. We are definitely better off without them. Uh, one time, Zeus was so thoroughly disgusted with humans that he decided to annihilate the species with a watery, watery deluge Let's talk about the the Greek 
uh, flood myth. Prometheus, before being chained to a rock, warned his son Deucalion to prepare a waterproof chest. When a great storm began to rain down upon the earth, Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha climbed into the chest, which was loaded with provisions, and they floated atop a great flooded ocean that drowned out the rest of the world. Sound familiar? Most ancient religions have some type of flood tale. After 10 days, the floods subside. The chest comes to rest on Mount Parsonus. When they emerge, Deucalion and Pyrrha offer a sacrifice to Zeus, asking him to restore the human race. The couple also go to Delphi and pray to the Titaness of Justice, who told them to cast the bones of their mother behind them. At first, this command confused them because it's, you know, it's a fucking weird thing to ask someone to do. But Deucalion had an inspiration. His mother's bones must be the stones that lay upon the earth, for the earth had given birth to mankind. And as Deucalion started casting stones behind him, these stones became men. And as Pyrrha cast stones behind her, they became women. And in this matter, the human race was reborn. So I'm sure that 100% totally happened literally. Now that we've explored the creation myths behind both the Greek gods and mankind, let's get to know some of the main cast of Olympian characters a little better. Uh, this is my favorite part. Uh, it's, it's God time, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to Godden. Uh, let's start with Zeus, God of Thunder, Lightning, and illegitimate sex trophies right after a word from another one of today's sponsors. Time Suck is brought to you today by Father Yod's Ball and Daddy Time Sleep Meditations for Young Ladies. Over 1,000 minutes of peaceful, soothing meditations, right, to get your young lady cheeks centered, your female chakras aligned, and your third eyelid heavy enough to get some solid soul slumber. I'm Father Yod. Get your mind right. Breathe in, breathe out, far out woman, can you feel it? Try and get some sleep, but not yet. Take your clothes off. Give me a call. How old are you? I'm the father you didn't know you could have, the one you need. Father who loves you, touches you. Sex magic, ballin' deep. How old are you? 22, younger. Age is just a number. And I like rolling 18s, you know what I mean? Is your birth daddy around? Go to sleep, take your panties off. You call me, I'll come over, ball you to bed. Pleasure's the only game worth playing. Moist, come to Hawaii, I'm still alive. Fake a death, avoid the IRS. Come on, Aquarian, you're a moonbeam. I'm a god. You're my heaven, let us create and populate. So call 1-800-HANG-GLIDER to get 100% off this complete nonsense. It makes no sense at all if you didn't hear last week's episode. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. You get it. All right. Uh, real sponsor time for seven people still listening. Time <laughs> is brought to you today by Movement. Whether you're at the office scrolling through your phone or unwinding from a long day, Movement's Everscroll blue light filtering glasses have you covered. They're built to protect your eyes from blue light that's known to cause eye strain, discomfort, poor sleeping patterns, and Everscroll, Everscroll, excuse me, blue light filtering glasses started just 65 bucks. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'm wearing them right now. Rocking some black revelers. Uh, short recording week this week for me with my stand-up travel. I had to stay up late last night. Uh, I'm getting you know, pretty good sleep, actually, the last couple weeks. Last night, I got three hours. Uh, just, you know, because I had to get out of town early, take the fam to Detroit for the special taping. So easily put in 16 hours yesterday on the computer, not a lot of sleep, and I'm, I'm tired. I'll crash early tonight, but my eyes are not fried, and it's thanks to these glasses. Uh, I truly, I wear them all the time now. So get 15% off today, free shipping, free returns by going to movement.com slash time suck. 
Shop Movement Everscroll blue light filtering glasses. Protect your eyes. Look great doing it. Go to movement.com slash timesuck. That's M-V-M-T. Join the movement. Link in the episode description. Now let's talk some more about Zeus, this weirdo. This, uh, after disposing Cronus, Zeus and his two brothers, Hades and Poseidon, drew lots to see which portion of the world would be ruled by each. Zeus received mastery of the sky, Poseidon got the sea, and Hades became master of the underworld. Also decreed that Earth, and Olympus in particular, would belong to all three. In addition to being born more powerful than his brother, Zeus gained another advantage from his position as the motherfucking god of the sky, since it allowed him free access to check out all those ladies below. And he would take full advantage of this ability. He has to be the rapiest god I've ever read about. <laughs> uh, indeed, as a sky god, it was expected of him to impregnate the earth with his seed, mimicking how seeds are spread by the wind. Almost no goddess nymph nor mortal woman was able to resist his godly sex charms. And those who didn't want anything to do with him, well, he found other ways to get what he wanted. Uh, Zeus is mostly known for being married to Hera, goddess of marriage and birth. But Zeus had several wives before her. His first wife was Metis, the goddess of wisdom we met earlier. Zeus decided to swallow her just before she gave birth to their daughter, Athena, because he knew that her second child would one day dethrone him. Seems to be a common way for these gods to solve problems, eating their family members. All right, your kids are destined to one day destroy you? Well, eat a mother's babies or eat your wife before she can have a baby that's going to kill you. In some sources, to allow Athena to live, Zeus and uh, Hephaestus uh, take an axe and cleave his forehead open. And from Zeus's head sprang Athena fully formed by swallowing Metis. Zeus had gained wisdom as part of his intrinsic nature and also somehow avoided the dethroning destiny. And if you're confused, it's because this shit's fucking super confusing and weird. It's like they were just on powerful hallucinogens constantly when they were coming up with all this. Uh, Zeus's second wife was Themis, the goddess of divine justice. She gave birth to the four seasons, to the wise laws, to human justice, to peace, to the fates, uh, a group of three mythological goddesses. They were often depicted as weavers of tapestry on a loom with the tapestry dictating the destinies of men. Zeus's third wife was your enemy, a hot-ass ocean nymph. She bore the three graces. Uh, it's uh, Aglia, Aglia, which is brightness, euphrosinine, joyfulness, and Thalia, bloom. Okay, uh, she, was, she wasn't enough for Zeus's insatiable sex drive, and he set his sexual sights on his sister, Demeter, the rare woman who resisted him. So he rapes his sister, and she gives birth to Persephone, the future queen of the underworld. Yikes! Yo, my heck! In various old Greek legends, Zeus, uh, Zeus rapes uh, all kinds of women. He's, like I said, very rapey god, which is obviously troubling. Uh, one can only imagine how much actual raping was going on in ancient Greece if the gods were setting that kind of tone and example. Zeus's next wife was the Titaness Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory, who happens to have a very difficult name to remember. Irony. Her union with Zeus produced the nine muses, deities that gave artists, philosophers, and individuals the necessary inspiration for creation. Zeus finally became enamored of the goddess who would become his permanent wife, Hera, who he would for sure cheat on so much. After courting her unsuccessfully several times, he changed himself into a disheveled cuckoo, or cuckoo, <laughs> this fucking bird. Uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know. When, when Hera took pity on the bird and held it to her breast, Zeus resumed his true form, and you guessed it, he, he kind of raped her. Uh, he tricked her, which, you know, is definitely rape. Uh, Hera then decided to marry Zeus to cover her shame, and the two had an extravagant wedding worthy of the gods. Again, terrible example to set for the humans below. 
You know, some woman's not into you. I just pull Zeus. You just rape her and then hope that she somehow decides to go ahead with it and marry you so no one finds out. This is insanity. Uh, Zeus and Hera have four children together. Hebe, the the cupbearer to the gods. Ares, the god of war. Uh, Elithia, goddess of childbearing. And then Hephaestus, Hephaestus, there we go, the craftsman of the gods. Although Hera claimed that Hephaestus was virgin born. Zeus was too busy uh, raping gods and people and animals and shit to be a good dad. So he never cared much for his two legitimate sons, Ares and Hephaestus. And his two legitimate daughters were almost non-entities to him as well. Hephaestus uh, was described as extremely unattractive in the text. He, he got a particularly you know, rough, I guess. One time Hephaestus got in, in the middle of a quarrel between Zeus and Hera. And he sided with his mom. And in a rage, Zeus hurled his ugly ass kid down from Olympus to the Isle of Lemnos, crippling him forever. Which I understand. I get it. I mean, pretty annoying to be a super powerful God and then you end up with an ugly kid. That has to sting. That has to sting. You know, you'd think you just pump out nothing but models if you were God, that your sons would look like Brad fucking Pitt and Troy, remember? Did I mention that was an awesome movie already? I think I did. No tombstone, but close. Uh, the arguments between Zeus and Hera were fairly frequent as Zeus continued to have uh, one affair after another. Hera wanted to punish him, but that wasn't easy because he was quite a bit stronger. And he could throw those damn lightning bolts whenever he wanted. While she couldn't lash out very effectively against Zeus directly, she could avenge herself on the females that Zeus banged. And she often did, which was a bummer considering that, you know, many of these women were raped. A number of Zeus's affairs resulted in new gods and goddesses. One night as Hera slumbered, Zeus made love to one of the seven Pleiades nymphs, a shy goddess who lived alone in a cave. Her name was Maya. After a time with Zeus, she gave birth to the tricky messenger of the gods, Hermes. By some accounts, Zeus was also the father of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, by way of banging the titaness Dione, or Dione, uh, more on Aphrodite later. Zeus would also have a twins with a gal named Leto, um, which is, you know, I, th- I think uh, probably who Boss Skaggs sang about, you know? Leto, oh, 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 one more time for the money. Zeus is hard to understand. What even am I talking about? I'm not sure that those are the exact words of that song. Uh, uh, So when he took lead of the goddess of modesty and womanly demure as his consort, Hera was pissed. Hera persecuted Leto by condemning her to bear her children in a land of complete darkness. Leto gave birth painlessly to Artemis, the virgin huntress on the uh, some island. Sometimes I'm just like, fucking some island has too many consonants. Nine days later, she gave birth to Apollo, the god of light and inspiration on the island of Delos. Another notable god had Zeus as a father and a mortal woman as a mother. This was Dionysius. I've mentioned uh, Dionysius several times already, the, the, the god of wine and revelry. Because of his mortal mother, he was never granted full Olympian status. His mother was the Theban princess Semele. Zeus visited her with his electrified god dick one night in the darkness, and she knew a divine being was present. When it turned out that Semele was pregnant, she boasted that Zeus was the father. Hera found out and came to Semele disguised as her nurse. Hera asked how she knew the father was Zeus. Semele had no proof. So Hera suggested that Semele asked to see this God in his full glory. The next time Zeus visited the girl, he was so delighted with her that he promised her anything she wanted. And she wanted to see Zeus fully revealed in the light. Then sadly, when he showed himself in his true essence, Semele was fucking obliterated by his God glory and burnt to ashes. Okay, makes sense. You know, actually, I do kind of understand that one a little bit. I, I won't let uh, Lindsay see me naked. Not in a completely lit up room. Mm-mm. No, sir. As you know, not, my majestic naked glory would burn her Polish eyes out. Behold. Behold. 
despite frying the kid's mom, Zeus was able to spare unborn Dionysius, sewing him. Uh, what he did is he sewed him up inside his thigh, as one does to save an unborn baby. And he let him hang out in his man leg womb until he was ready to emerge later. Yep, all this makes a lot of sense. Zeus still had more kids, uh, many of which would not be gods. Among Zeus's offspring were great heroes such as Perseus, slayer of the Gorgon, Medusa, founder of the Perseid dynasty. We'll talk about Perseus a lot later. Two other sons were Castor and Polydeuces, uh, two of the Argonauts that watched Jason, you know, do what he had to do to get that golden fleece. There was also the great Heracles, defender of Olympus. Other children were founders of great cities or countries. Uh, Epaphus, who founded Memphis. Arcus, who became king of Arcadia. And uh, the founder of Sparta was one of his uh, sons. Another one of his neglected children was the wisest lawgiver of his age, the first Minos. Another was a fabulous beauty, the famous Helen of Troy. And on and on and on. Uh, he, and then um, there was uh, one uh, was a king, a monster, and a divine piece of shit, Tantalus, who attempted to serve his own son at a feast with the gods. This guy was punished by Zeus to go forever thirsty and hungry in Hades, despite being uh, in a pool of water and almost within reach of a fruit tree. Zeus was like, listen, don't think that just because I'm super rapey and in favor of killing, uh, or that I'm in favor of killing and eating your kids. We all draw our own, you know, morality lines and mine is somewhere between kid eating and rape. Um, all of Zeus's kids were powerful and renowned in some way, good or bad. Leda was another victim of Zeus's lust. After being visited by Zeus in the form of a swan, yes, Zeus, uh, you know, raped her as a swan. She gave birth to an, an egg from which Helen and uh, Clemens, Clemenstra and Castor and Polydeuces were born. What the fuck are you even talking about? I don't know. It's just a fucking series of crazy words. And, th and this, is, this is pared down to make it as much sense as I can possibly have it make. My God. Fuck! Yeah, these, you know, they didn't, they, their, their books were a little different. Uh, thousands of years ago. I just keep on picturing it as like a children's book now. <laughs> sitting there reading this to your kids. Then a swan came. Then a swan came. And raped her and she gave birth to an egg. But. <laughs> exactly. They probably were reading these to Greek kids a long time ago. Anyway, uh, I couldn't hold it any longer. Carry on. I get it. I get it. I get it. Uh, since Lita's husband, uh, uh, Tyndarus, also made love to her shortly after Zeus, the exact paternity of her quadruplets, subject to question, and now this, now this next tale features Zeus raping a woman after turning her into a cow. Uh, we're getting even weirder than we already have been. This story revolves around Io, princess of Argos, who is an ancestor of many kings and heroes such as Perseus, Cadmus, and Heracles. <laughs> Poor Io was famous for her long persecution at the hands of Hera. Zeus fell in love with Io, seduced her under a thick blanket of clouds to keep Hera from spotting him. Hera was uh, so aware of Zeus's constant philandering and she was apparently always trying to keep an eye on him. And for gods, you'd think they have a healthy relationship. Too bad they couldn't do some kind of God counseling. Here was on to her, her cheating husband's bullshittery. And she flew down from Olympus, dispersed the clouds, caught Zeus with his dick out, standing by a white heifer, who, of course, was Eo. He had turned into a cow. And Zeus was like, Noth nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Just uh, your husband, fresh after a bit of cow fucking. No big whoops. We all have our kinks and faults. Sometimes, you know, you're jealous and insecure. Sometimes I have a fucking cow behind a cloud. Hera calmly asks Zeus if she could have this animal. Zeus gives it to her. He's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's just a cow. I don't even care. Hera knew it was Eo. And then she imprisoned her, put her under her guard. The watchman Argus was put in charge of guarding her. Argus was a giant with a hundred eyes. Fucking, they love the number a hundred. <laughs> Argus was a perfect god or a guard because he never slept. And then eventually Zeus, you know, he was tired of not, you know, having access to Eo because I guess he, he really wanted to have sex with her more, some more. And uh, so he sends his son Hermes to rescue her. 
In disguise, Hermes manages to put Argus to sleep with stories and flute playing. And then Hermes, master of the super boring story, accompanied by, accompanied by some kind of soft jazz flute playing shit, kills him. As, <laughs> these stories, they really are so ridiculous. As a memorial to Argus, Hera sets his eyes in the tail of her pet bird, the peacock, which is how they got to look how they look. And then Hera, furious at Eo's escape, uh, sends a gadfly to chase Eo all over the earth. Still in the form of a cow, Eo <laughs> runs madly from country to country, tormented by the stinging insect. And then finally she comes across Prometheus, chained to that rock, right, in the, in the Caucasus. And the two victims of divine injustice discuss her plight. Prometheus points out that her sufferings are far from over. But that after a long journey, she would reach the Nile, she'd be changed back into a human shape, give birth to Epiphus, the son of Zeus, and receive many honors. So fuck yeah, kind of good news. You know, not gonna be a cow, chased by a fly forever. And then from Eo's descendants would come Heracles, the man who would help defend Olympus from angry giants. The man who had set Prometheus free by killing the eagle Zeus had sent to repeatedly eat his liver and then unchain him. Man, if I get a time machine, if we do get one of those figured out, never going back to ancient Greece. <laughs> this is the most insane culture. If Hera was, did, uh, <laughs> actually, actually they weren't. Actually, their stories, their gods were more insane than they were in many ways, thankfully. If Hera was diligent about uh, punishing Eo for sleeping with Zeus, the opposite is true for Europa, who escaped her wrath without consequence. One morning, this lovely daughter of the king of Sidon had a dream in which two continents in female form laid claim to her. Europa belonged to Asia by birth, but the other continent, which was nameless, said that Zeus would give Europa to her. Later, while Europa and her girl companions were frolicking by the sea, Zeus was smitten with the princess because he wanted to fuck everything, and he changed himself into a marvelous bull of great handsomeness which is kind of weird to say. You know, he's, he's not going to be just a regular old bull. Nah, he's going to be some sexy-ass bull, you know? So sexy, just a handsome-ass bull. He approaches the girls, you know, that gently run over to play with him because he's, he's a handsome-ass bull. Zeus kneels down, Europa happily climbs on his back, and then he charges out into the sea. He's like, ha tricked you. And they head out to, you know, Europa. Or, I'm sorry, they head out, uh, Europa's on, on the back of Zeus as the bull. And then they have some other strange sea creatures show up, like Tritons and Poseidon and shit. And Europa soon realizes that the bull is a god. And she begs Zeus not to desert her. Zeus replies he's taking her to Crete, his original home, and they're going to bang it out. And later their kids are going to be grand kings who would rule all men. So they do go to the island of Crete. They do bang it out. Europa gives, uh, Europa gives birth to Minos and Rhadamanthus, wise rulers who become judges in the netherworld after death. And Europa gives her name to an entire continent. Yep, Europe named after this one of the fucking most ridiculous, crazy stories. Despite his conquest, Zeus, not always successful in his love pursuits, the nymph Asteria manages to resist him only by the most desperate means. She has to change herself into a quail. I guess it's one of the few animals Zeus wouldn't fuck. And then she flings herself into the sea and she becomes a floating island of Ortigia. Uh, on one occasion, Zeus himself renounces the nymph Thetis when he learns that she would give birth to a son greater than his father. He's like, no, 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 not gonna, not gonna do that. Not gonna go down that road. Don't want to have to eat him. Also, Zeus didn't just love uh, lust after women. He was a uh, bi, or, or perhaps a better term suited to his sexual taste would be omnisexual. His attraction was limited to nothing, really. Or, you know, not to, he just, he's attracted to everything. Uh, Ganymede was a young Trojan prince renowned for his attractiveness. So Zeus had the boy abducted by his eagle, flies him out to Olympus so he can be his lover. I know that was a lot of Zeus talk, but he deserved a lot of attention. You know, he's like the most powerful of the Greek gods. 
Last thing about Zeus, some think Zeus was modeled after a much older god known as Nimrod. Yes, the giant space Sasquatch, size of an entire galaxy with the head of a chupacabra. The god that rides a black unicorn with flaming suns for eyes. The god who once demanded loyalty in ancient times by having followers stomp the skulls of cocker spaniels once a month to pay tribute. The god who's faithful would live forever in his Alpha and Omega immortal ball sack. But Nimrod's form scared the ancient Greeks. They were too vain to worship an entity that did not look like them. And they turned the giant primordial beast into a man. They forgot their god, began to worship their own image. Nimrod, older than chaos, reigning so far back that his reign circles infinitely, wrapping back around to form the future, filling the space-time continuum with his celestial glory. Nimrod gave birth to both chaos and Uranus and to many gods before them and countless solar systems and worlds beyond these. Nimrod created the race of the Anunnaki, the space lizards destined to rule humanity, reptilians who once were good, but then became greedy, turned selfish and dark. And then a new tribe of space lizards was created by Nimrod to defeat the old reptilians, just as the gods of Olympus overthrew their titans, or something like that. Just, just a thought. Just a thought. A lot of time suck mythology in this suck, as well as Greek mythology. If you're a new sucker, this, this might not be the best episode to start with. Uh, also, I got to say, after all these Greek stories, my stories of the time said gods, not any crazier, not any crazier. I thought Nimrod's story for a while there was a little too weird, but now compared to the Zeus stuff, really kind of right in the ballpark of how weird that stuff's supposed to be, I guess. Okay, let's now, now let's go back to the uh, Greek gods. Next up, Poseidon, great god of the sea. Zeus's brother Poseidon gained control of the sea as his portion of the world back when Zeus was given the sky. And like the sea, also, he was uh, stormy and violent. Poseidon built a palace in the watery depths and sought a wife who could live there, which was hard to find because quite a few people have trouble breathing underwater. At one time, Poseidon courted Thetis, a sexy little sea nymph, but he gave her up when he learned that she would bear a son greater than him. So much father-son anxiety in these tales. Man, such a reflection of the times. All these old ancient Greek city-state kings clearly real fucking worried about their sons coming after the throne. Apparently, that was a real problem. I wonder if Kyler's going to try and take time suck away from me when he gets older. I should probably lock him in Tartarus. You know, can't be too safe. Can't risk him taking a scythe to my balls. Getting too powerful. I'll have to talk to him. You know, as soon as I see my son next, I'm like, hey, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you try and scythe off my nuts. I'm just, then I'm just going to walk away. Later, I'll be like, you fucking, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Poseidon courted uh, Amphitrite. Uh, Amphitrite. Yeah, these fucking names. This is one of those ones. I said it so many times before the show, hoping it would stick. Wrote so many pronunciation guides, but it just it does not fit in my brain head. Uh, Amphitrite. I think it's Amphitrite. Another sea nymph, uh, you know, was courted by Poseidon. She disliked him, fled far away. Dude, striking out with the sea nymphs. Uh, Poseidon sent messengers to fetch Amphitrite and one of them, a dolphin, able to persuade her to marry the lord of the sea. Good job, dolphin. That's why people like you. You're helpful. This marriage would not be a happy one because Poseidon, like Zeus, loved some side action. And uh, uh, Amphitrite, just like Hera, would take her frustrations out on her man's lovers. In one case, Amphitrite uh, transformed one of her husband's mistresses into a loathsome barking monster, as one does. Not satisfied with lordship over the sea, Poseidon coveted earthly realms as well. In a dispute with the goddess Athena, who we'll talk about in a moment, for dominion over Athens, the two gods had a contest as to which could give the Athenians the best gift. Poseidon shoved his trident into the Acropolis and produced either a flowing stream or a horse, depending on the story. And then Athena gave the Athenians an olive tree. Fucking an olive tree? 
Come on, gods, this is boring. The best you can do is give someone a horse or a tree. Why not give them a hoverboard or pizza or PS4? You know, if that's too modern, give them a hundred-headed dragon. But, you know, maybe one that doesn't even shoot fire. No, each, each head shoots out like a different kind of cheese. Maybe, maybe some shoot cheeses, some shoot hummus. Some shoot out Greek frozen yogurt or warm pitas or gyro meat. The Athenians weren't impressed with their shitty gifts. So then Poseidon challenged Athena to combat for control of the city. But Zeus demanded that they, uh-uh, no fighting. We got to go to the god court. We're going to submit this to arbitration. And the male gods sided with Poseidon. The female goddesses uh, favored Athena. Zeus withheld his votes. So that gave a slight majority and Athena won. In retaliation, Poseidon flooded the country around Athens. His other bids for uh, power were unsuccessful as well. He tried to seize Noxos from Dionysius, Aegina from Zeus, Corinth from Helios, Argolis from Hera. His quarrelsome greed made him rather unpopular with the other Olympians. Athena certainly wasn't a fan. Uh, let's talk more about her now. As a warrior goddess, Athena was depicted in long flowing robes, wearing a helmet, holding a spear in one hand and a winged victory symbol in the other. She was a formidable warrior who took an active part in the war against the giants in the Trojan War. Unlike Ares, who was a hothead, always too eager to start a fight, but then cowardly often once it started, Athena had a cool, prudent courage that aided her in various undertakings. She was a fucking badass. Lucifina loves her. A protectress of heroes, Athena at different points assisted Perseus, Heracles, Bellifron, Hank, Achilles, Odysseus, Jojo, Tina, Ding Ding, and their various experts. I might as well just fucking make up weird shit. Uh, obviously, some of those were fake. Athena was also the rare god who remained a virgin. Once uh, Hephaestus tried to rape her, fucking rapey gods, but Athena managed to defend herself and Hephaestus spilled his seed under the ground and then the ground gave birth to <laughs> Erichthonius. Ah, just right when I think it can't get weirder. Man, you gotta be careful jerking off the woods. Apparently around Greece, might get the ground pregnant. That's a new one. Athena took care of this little dirt baby. Imagine <laughs> this dirt baby became king of Athens, a great king, and it made Athena the chief deity of the city. <laughs> That'd be a weird childhood. Who's your Who's your mom? Fucking dirt. No, but for for real, who's your mom? Fucking dirt. You're standing. You're standing. Get my mom. Get my mom. Stop standing on my mom. Dirt. Uh, another time, uh, Teresius, the son of the shepherd Averes and the nymph Charclo, accidentally found Athena bathing and, and she blinded him. She wasn't going to let some dude violate her with her eyes. You know, no rapey gods, no peeping toms. Then she gave this accidental peeper the gift of prophecy to compensate for his blindness. All right. Athena was also an inventor. Among her many inventions with the trumpet, the flute, the pot, the rake, the plow, the yoke, the bridle, the ship, the chariot. She also invented math. And excelled in the arts of cooking, spinning, and weaving. Such a random assortment of skills. So there you go. You know, uh, you don't have to look into any other sources for inventions. You want to know who invented something, just look into the Greek gods. Case closed. Uh, Athena prided herself in the ability to weave. And once when a princess from Colophon, uh, Arachne, showed up producing a flawless tapestry, the angry goddess changed her into a spider. And that's how we got spiders from Arachne. Arachnids, get it? Uh, yeah, for someone with so much ability... She was also clearly very insecure, petty, vengeful, and a violent asshole. Although Athena invented the flute for sure, she also became disgusted with the flute. When Hera and Aphrodite laughed at her swollen chinks as she played it, because she was very insecure for a god. So she threw the flute away, pronounced a curse on it. <laughs> um, to illustrate a story about this cursed flute, the satyr, uh, Marcius, picked the flute up, acquired great skill in the instrument. Apollo heard the noise, became jealous of Marcius' ability. She challenged him to a music contest. When Apollo won, he flayed the satyr to death and then nailed his skin to a tree. How fucking dare you challenge me to a flute contest? You know how seriously I take flute contests? I'll fucking put your skin on a tree. 
Uh, next Olympian, Apollo. This, this stuff is making the serial killer sucks look like, G, like they're G-rated. Uh, Apollo was a god of many things, as most Greek gods were. As a deity of light, he helped to ripen crops, destroy pests, heal illness. He could also be deadly. He shot terrible arrows and created plagues. A god of prophecy, he had many uh, oracular shrines, the chief one being at Delphi. He was a shepherd god as well, protected flocks, master of the lyre and song. Apollo was especially vain about his musical powers, kept the muses as part of his entourage. Beyond this, he was a builder and a god of colonies. In his representations, he was depicted as a nude, beardless young man of handsome proportions, often shown with a bow and a quiver or lyre. As you mentioned previously, Hera was an ass to Apollo's mother, Leto. She, uh, Leto, ho, 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 uh, She even once sent the serpent Python to per, uh, pursue Leto during her pregnancy. Four days after he was born, Apollo called for a bow and arrow, uh, which is super impressive for a four-day-year-old boy. When Hephaestus furnished these, uh, Apollo went in search of Python. He managed to trap the serpent in a gorge and then slewed it. He did some slewing. He slayed it with his arrows. Uh, on two occasions, Apollo aroused the anger of his father, Zeus, and these weren't like little spats. This wasn't like get off the couch and do the dishes. Uh, this is big stuff. The first time he pissed Zeus off is when he uh, acted in concert with uh, Hera, Poseidon, and other gods to dethrone Zeus, which had been kind of high-handed recently, and that's definitely going to piss off a ruler when you conspire to end the rule. These guys captured Zeus, bound him to his couch, where the rebels threatened to kill him. However, the nymph Thetis showed up with Briarius, one of those three fucking 50-head, 100-arm, not-well-thought-out things to guard Zeus. And this effectively quashed the rebellion. In vengeance, Zeus hung Hera by her heels from Olympus. Then he sent Apollo and Poseidon to a year's servitude under King Laomedon to help build Troy. And when Laomedon refused to pay them the rightful wages for building Troy intended to the royal oxen, Apollo visited Laomedon's kingdom with the plague and Poseidon sent a sea monster to ravage his land. So weird. Hiring gods for construction. Right? And then what the fuck do they care if they don't get paid or not? What, they, what, they need money now? They live on Mount Olympus. What, what do they want in Greek currency for? Like, who's going to turn them down? Just, sorry, Apollo. Nah, the, the chicken shawarma, is, it's, three, it's three drachmas. It's not two. I'm sorry, I, I, I cannot serve you. Uh, the other time Apollo angered Zeus occurred when Zeus killed Apollo's son, Asclepius. Oh, this name sucks. Asclepius. Asclepius. For resurrecting a dead man. In retaliation, Apollo killed Zeus's armorers, the Cyclopses. A lot of, a lot of collateral damage in these arguments. Uh, Zeus would have sent Apollo to Tartarus, except that Leto pleaded for her son. Apollo was then given a year's servitude under King Admetus for whom he'd perform great services. Again, so weird to loan out gods to kings as like some kind of weird contractor. Bummer for the other workers too. Can you imagine having to work alongside a god? Come on, Marty, let's pick out the pace. Apollo just laid three miles of road in one day. What have you put down? Like two feet tops? Come on, dude. Uh, after defeating Marcius in a music contest, Apollo had another contest with Pan, the goat god of the wild, shepherds and flocks, nature, mountain wilds, the dude with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. Pan, also the god of fields, groves, wooded glens, kind of a minor sex god too. All these gods kind of, you know, their realms of influence overlap quite a bit. Apollo wins this contest, emerging as the undisputed second best musician of the gods. He would go on to release a string of gold and platinum albums, would be the second ever inductee into the Mount Olympus Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Who was the best musician? I think you know. Triple M, Michael motherfucking McDonald's. Some think he's not a real man. Some think he's an ancient Greek god. He's been showing up for thousands of years to play the sound so sweet they keep humankind from destroying itself. 
music infused with audio ambrosia to keep our spirits alive. Michael's music is the music of Mount Olympus. Of course, the gods listened to Yacht Rock. They lived Yacht Rock. Zeus once threatened to destroy the entire earth in a fit of petty rage after Hera confronted him about some new animal rape or something. And then Triple M played Sweet Freedom to change his mind. Shine, sweet freedom. Shine your light on me. Bow, bow, bow. You are the magic. You're right where I want to be. I went too high. Went too high on it. But Zeus was like, you're right, Michael. I am right where I want to be. I'm right where everyone wants to be. Ah, oh, that's so wise. I mean, I'm Zeus. I, I do whatever I want, you know? God, keep, keep, keep singing. Shine, sweet freedom. Shine your light on me. You are the magic. You're right where I want to be. A little better. Greek God hits, baby. And I'm back. Okay. Apollo was a handsome God. A hit with the ladies. A non-rapey hit, which was nice. Nymphs and human women alike loved him. He seduced numerous nymphs and goddesses, having children with each. But even a handsome Greek God can have romantic failures because the Greek gods were also human. So obviously created in man's image. Beautiful woman named Marpessa eluded him. Marpessa is described as being fair-ankled. Fair-ankled. Not sure a modern woman would appreciate that description of her beauty. I don't know, man. She's hot. <laughs> Dude, have you seen her ankles? Fuck yeah. I mean, her face kind of scary. Her breasts kind of point in opposite directions. And she's pretty, you know, she's extremely obese. But that, none of that matters when you see those hot, sexy ankles. Woo! Uh, the sexy nymph Daphne was changed into a laurel tree by Mother Earth. Actually, you know what? I do like a sexy ankle. Not even joking. I love, uh, I love Lindsay's ankles. Yeah, there, <laughs> let's just get that out. Uh, you already know so much about me. She's got good ankles. I like them. Uh, the sexy nymph Daphne was changed into a laurel tree by Mother Earth before Apollo could ravish her. To console himself, Apollo made a laurel wreath from her. When the Trojan princess Cassandra later rejected him, he gave her the gift of divination. He turned the gift into a curse by making it so that no one would believe her prophecies. Oh, bummer. These gods are dicks sometimes. Apollo also fell in love with a handsome boy, Hysynthius. Sexually, the Greeks were, you know, different. Uh, Zephyrus, the west wind, fell in love with the boy too and became very jealous of Apollo. One day as Apollo was instructing the boy in discus throwing, which is not a euphemism for some weird sexual act. Nothing like, what are you guys doing? Throwing a little discus? Wink, wink. Not even sure what that act would uh, describe. Feel free to imagine it. Uh, Apollo was actually showing how he said this, how to, uh, you know, throw a discus properly. And the zealous, when the jealous Zephyrus seized the missile midair, hurled it against Hysynthius's head, killing him. And then when his blood fell on the ground, the Hyacinth flower sprang up, bearing the boy's initials. Apollo and Zephyrus didn't battle after that, but Apollo was super pissed at Zephyrus for killing his lover. You know, not cool, Z. Not cool. Uh, Apollo had a twin sister who was a goddess, Artemis. Artemis was the virgin huntress goddess of the chase and forest creatures. The young also fell into her care and because her mother Leto had delivered her without pain, Artemis would be called upon during childbirth for help. Uh, usually depicted in long robes, carrying a bow and quiver, accompanied by a troop of woodland nymphs. So many nymphs. So much nymph action in today's suck. Didn't know I'd be sucking all these sweet nymphs. Uh, one of the nymphs who followed Artemis was Callisto, whom Zeus made love to. Of course he did. Disguised as Artemis herself. Dude was kinky, taking the shape of animals, even other gods to get his Zeus rocks off. Uh, one account says that when Artemis discovered the poor nymph was pregnant, she reached for her bow and arrow. Just as Artemis was about to kill the hapless girl, Zeus changed uh, Callisto into a bear and set her up in heaven as the constellation of Ursa Major. Okay, that's all right. That's one way to do something, I guess. I don't know how that's a help. I don't know how you'd want to be a constellation. That seems just as bad as getting killed. 
Uh, Artemis didn't like to be spied on when she bathed, which I totally get now that I've read about all so many, all these horny, raping dude gods. Once when a, when a mighty uh, Thetan hero hunter uh, trained to fight by the same centaur that taught Achilles, this Actaeon came across her and her nymphs in the nude, she changed him into a stag, then set his own hounds upon him to literally tear him to pieces. Fun. Now let's look at the sexiest goddess of them all, Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love in all forms, the protectress of marriage, the inspirer of ideal affection, the deity of sexuality. She was often depicted in sculptures as a voluptuous nude of striking beauty. I've seen them. I like them. In addition to her natural charm, she also possessed a magical girdle that rendered her irresistible to gods and mortals alike. Hail, Lucifina. I gotta give me some... So I get some sexy boxer action for Lindsay. Uh, Zeus gave Aphrodite to Hephaestus, the ugly, lame craftsman of the gods, to his wife, and he was fucking pumped, or to be his wife. So he gets Hephaestus, you know, the ugly guy, he gets to marry the hot Aphrodite. Hephaestus is obsessed with Aphrodite, but she's not interested in him. So she takes Ares, you know, the god of war, to be her lover. Helios reports her misconduct to Hephaestus, who fashions a very fine but powerful net, suspends it above his wife's bed. Hephaestus then tells his wife he's going away for a few days. Aphrodite summons Ares. Uh, they go at it in the wild for the bed, and the net falls up upon them, binding them together. Hephaestus then calls upon the other gods to witness his naked wife. He just, you know, leaves them there naked, brings everybody in to look at them. Ah, look at look at that. Look what they did. Love how Jerry Springer these gods are. Look at Jerry. Look at Aphrodite. Go on, fuck Aries now. You want other dudes to see you naked? Well, let the whole world look and shit. And then on the show, Aphrodite would slip out of the net and then run across the stage, start punching Hephaestus, and then some other goddess would grab her by the hair and a big brawl would break out. You know, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Uh, Apollo and Hermes, uh, they jested about how they would not mind being caught in the net with such an attractive goddess. And Poseidon becomes enamored of Aphrodite, offers to guarantee payment of the dowry should Ares default. So they, uh, Hephaestus can get out of the marriage. Hephaestus then releases Ares and never receives the dowry, but neither does he divorce his wife. He chooses instead to tolerate her infidelities. These books, a lot of times these stories are not well-written. Uh, <laughs> again, if you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, after this incident, Aphrodite starts getting busy with a lot of dudes. She bears children to the gods Hermes, Poseidon, Dionysius. She doesn't sleep with Zeus, and he punishes her by making her fall in love with a mortal, a handsome Trojan prince, uh, and and uh, Jesus, I don't know. There's so many fucked up names in this one. In disguise, Aphrodite offers herself to the young man who makes love to her in a bed of furs. In the morning, she reveals her true identity, which terrifies him. She says that no harm will befall him unless he reveals her secret tryst with him. Naturally, he can't help himself. He's bragging about it with his drinking companions. Zeus hurls a thunderbolt at him that would have killed him had not Aphrodite deflected his course a little. And then he could never walk upright again. It is the result of his union with Aphrodite. Uh, he has a child named Aeneas who would become a great hero. Proud of her beauty, Aphrodite took offense when the queen of Cyprus bragged that her daughter was more lovely. Aphrodite infected the girl with an incestuous love for her king, the father, uh, or for her father, the king. The girl contrived a union with the king and became pregnant. Upon learning <laughs> so much incest, and upon learning that he was the procreator of his, of his daughter's child, the king grabbed a sword and chased the girl in rage. Just as, just as he was about to cut her in two, Aphrodite changed her into a tree. As the sword swung through, it split the tree. And like we all learn in grade school, this is where babies come from. Chopped trees. <laughs> a baby comes out of the tree. The baby's called Adonis, the god of beauty and desire. Aphrodite takes the baby and, and, and gives the baby to Persephone, queen of the underworld. And then this baby grows into a handsome youth. And Persephone, as any good foster mom would do, becomes the baby's lover. 
Aphrodite, after hearing about how hot Adonis had become, goes to the underworld to get a little action herself. And then they fight over this dude. And it's decided through some more God arbitration that each should have him for a third of the year. And he gets a third for himself to fuck whoever else he wants. <laughs> Dissatisfied with this agreement, Aphrodite, uh, you know, she wants more Adonis D than that. Wants more than just four months a year. She seduces Adonis with her magic girdle and convinces him to remain with her the whole year. And this pisses Persephone off, who reports the situation to our, uh, Aphrodite's old lover, Ares, or, yeah, uh, who changes himself into a boar and attacks Adonis and kills him. His blood falls to the ground. Flowers spring forth. His soul descends to the underworld where Persephone starts fucking him all over again. And then Aphrodite petitions Zeus to allow Adonis to spend at least the summer months in her company and Zeus agrees. I thought the stories of the Norse gods were crazy. This was just, <laughs> this is, I, I, I don't even know what's happening half the time. And I've read this several times and I've gone over this and, oh my gosh. <laughs> and those of you who wonder about the research, because we got Zach, uh, Zach gets all this stuff lined up initially that I go all over it again for many, many more hours and add my own extra notes and compile it yet again and then read it yet again and then hone it and stuff. And still some of these stories, I'm like, what is happening? The, okay, let's talk about Hermes. The cleverest and most precocious God was Hermes. His functions were related to travel for the most part, God of the roads, commerce, thievery, usher of the dead of the netherworld. He was also a phallic God. Pillars and uh, with a head called Herms were set up in front of Greek homes. He's a god of intelligence. He invented the lyre, the pipes, the musical scale, astronomy, weights, measures, boxing, gymnastics, and he was the god of how to care well for olive trees. I love how random that is. Wow, you're the god of astronomy and of intelligence and of business? And also olive trees, but well, kind of. How to care for them, at least. Do not forget that skill of mine. I can take care of an olive tree very well if you sacrifice upon my altar. Immediately after Hermes was born, he went out and killed a tortoise. From its shell, he created the lyre. With the lyre, he, pulled his, he lulled his mother Maya to sleep, which left him free to do as he pleased. Before long, he started wandering around, and he came across a splendid herd of cattle that belonged to Apollo, because I guess gods need to raise cattle for some reason. <laughs> he promptly stole the herd. This guy is the track, so no one could trace him. When Apollo discovered his loss, he went out searching in all directions for his stolen cattle, because they were very important to him. He even posted a reward, like a regular non-god dude. I guess he went down to the god post office, like, hey, hey if you've seen these cattle, try to find my cattle. Finally, he gets wind of the whereabouts and finds two cows hiding at Hermes' dwelling. Still a baby, Hermes is pretending to be asleep, but Apollo insisted on taking him before Zeus. He's like, fuck that baby! A baby stole my cows! And I want him punished! To the fullest extent of the god laws. Zeus is astonished. When Apollo accuses the baby of taking his cattle, but Apollo, but Apollo browbeats the little baby Hermes into a full confession. <laughs> After admitting that he'd sacrificed two of the cows to the gods, even though he was a god, this is all very confusing, Hermes promised to deliver the rest of the herd to Apollo. On the way to get the cows, Hermes takes Apollo home and shows him the leer he had made. Apollo was so impressed with it that he exchanged the cattle for the leer. And like, we're all good, dude. And then they became good buddies. Just one adult god just chilling with a little baby god. Hermes then presented himself to Zeus as a new god and promised never to steal or tell a lie again. And then Zeus defined his new duties as the god of travel and gave Hermes his winged sandals and his staff. And he became a messenger to the gods and he showed up in a lot of stories. So many more gods we could look into, but I don't want to because they're all fucking so crazy and ridiculous and it gets hard to follow after a while. So just one more. Let's, let's roll the celestial dice 
and Nimrod has chosen Dionysius. We've mentioned him already. Now let's take a good look. As the god of the vine, Dionysius was closely connected to the earth. Since his mother, Semele, was immortal, he was technically a demigod. And like the grapevines, he established Dionysius himself would be dismembered and then resurrected. Fun. God of wine, he could inspire men with lofty visions to degrade them into raving savages through his powers of intoxication. His worship was marked by a sta- uh, ecstatic, or a sta- <laughs> ecstatic ritual, uh, by frenzied excesses in the wilderness, also by sublime dramatic festivals. He was often accompanied by the uh, maids or the uh, bacantes. I think that's how you say that. Wild women carrying rods tipped with pine cones who served as his priestesses and worshipers. When Dionysius' mother was destroyed by Zeus, revealing himself in a flash of lightning, if you'll remember, Zeus took her unborn infant, right? Put him in his thigh. That's where he developed. You know, got his, got his leg birth. Uh, Hera held a grudge after he was born, you know, since Zeus was always cheating on her and he sent the Titans to tear Dionysius to pieces, which they did, but it's hard to fucking kill a god. So he's brought back to life by the Titaness Rhea, his grandmother. Zeus saw to it that Dionysius was, should be protected. Cared for by mountain nymphs, the god had went on to invent wine, and in time, he grew to maturity. Dionysius then set about a mission establishing vine cultivation, and, uh, you know, with its mysterious uh, mysteries and rites throughout Asia Minor and, and India. He met opposition in various places, but those who opposed him usually met with terrible fates. And then accompanied by his little followers, he visited Thebes, which was ruled by King Pentheus, his own cousin, Pentheus didn't like him. The king ordered the whole group to be chained and imprisoned. Although that action was, you know, directly against the advice of his, of his seer. No earthly power could shackle this god and his followers, so they escaped easily. And then Dionysius shattered Pentheus' palace and drove him mad. And in his lunacy, Pentheus decided to spy on uh, Dionysius' followers, and he went dressed as a woman. Out in the mountains, he came upon the frenzied women as they feasted on animals they'd torn apart. The Minids rushed upon Pentheus, thinking him a wild beast. Pentheus' own mother ripped his head off while the others tore him limb from limb. On another occasion, Dionysius was walking along the shore and pirates captured him, seeing the richly dressed young man as an easy source of ransom. On board the ship, the pirates tried to chain him, but their attempt was fruitless because he kept, you know, shackles would fall off him. He can't be chained. The crew was like, dude, I don't think you should do this anymore. You should let him go. And the captain's like, no, 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 I guess I got this. But he didn't have it because Dionysius caused the ship to run with wine. And vines entangled the mast, and he changed himself into a lion. And then he was like, no, I don't want to be a lion. I want to be a bear instead. And then he became a bear. And then he mauled the captain. And then the crew were like, ah, fuck, we got to get away from this lion bear. And they jumped off into the water and became dolphins. <laughs> and then Dionysius re- resumed his true form and reassured this one guy, this helmsman that was still in the boat, like, hey, don't even worry about it. Uh, it's cool, man. Just keep, uh, keep steering. We're good. I'm the son of Zeus. So that's, you know, that's how Dionysius was. And there was many other gods, goddesses, and divine creatures living in ancient Greece, and they're too fucking crazy to talk about. Now it's hero time. Okay, this, I will say the hero time, if you're like, God, I can't take any more of this. Now, it makes a little more sense than the, than the god stuff. And we're going to get into it right after today's final sponsor. Time Suck brought to you by Villains, that new podcast from Parcast. Masterminds, evildoers, savages, bad, bad meat sacks. For every hero, there is a villain. And as you know, there have been no shortage of villains in this world. This new podcast, Villains from the Parcast Network, highlights these psychological, political, and emotional factors that spawn both real and fictional villains. Every Friday, Villains focuses on a different real or fictional evildoer. For fictional villains, you'll delve into the social influences that lead to the character's creation. For real villains, you'll learn the, uh, the true story of their dark deeds, hear what drove them to be evil. 
You'll hear episodes on a variety of bad guys from the Joker, Charles Manson, Darth Vader, Pablo Escobar, some fictional, obviously some real, all of them villains. So follow Villains for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit parkcast.com slash villains to listen to Villains today. More villains coming up in this suck. Villains, these heroes are going to fight. Uh, the Greek heroes include famous names like Achilles, Alexander the Great, Heracles, Icarus, Jason. <laughs> Again, I love just Jason. Uh, Odysseus, Perseus, Theseus. They all have epic tales. Just going to share two today. Really kind of three if you count the greatly abbreviated tale of Jason the Argonauts we already did. So two more. Uh, we'll start with the great Perseus. The 2010 blockbuster film and remake of the 1981 film of the same name, Clash of the Titans, is about Perseus' Perseus's adventures. But we're not telling the Hollywood version. Showbiz! We're telling the crazier, much more nonsensical Greek version. And then we'll close with the incredible and also what the fuck is happening right now tale of Heracles. Let's head to the ancient Greek city-state of Argos. Or Argos. King uh, Acrisius ruled over the kingdom of Argos, but possessed no heir who could take over the kingdom when he died. His only child was a maiden, uh, Danahe, but she could not take the throne when he died. So King Acrisius went to an oracle to see if one day he would have a son. And the oracle said that he would have a son, but bad news. No, I'm sorry. The oracle said that he would not have a son, bad news. And then even worse news, you will have a grandson who will kill you. So I don't want, I mean, I hope I don't have one of those grandsons. I, you know what? More I think about it, I need to. I need to do so. I need to eat Kyler and Monroe. I need to eat them, right? Just to just or imprison them at the very least to keep myself safe. That's what I'm learning. That's the main lesson I've learned here is that kids are very dangerous. You know, they're either going to kill you or they're going to make kids that will kill you. Uh, greatly alarmed, the king had an underground chamber built, one with a skylight, and he imprisoned his daughter there to make sure she didn't bear him any children. However, his prison wasn't strong enough to keep out Zeus, that horny serial raper in the sky who could see the you know. See his daughter through the skylight. Zeus's spidey senses got tingling when he heard about a, you know, or sensed a beautiful princess chained up. And, uh, and so he visited Danahe in her bronze chamber in the form of a golden shower. Not kidding. He showed up in the form of some golden rain. And then the god liquid streamed throughout the roof of the subterranean chamber, came to that little sunlight, went into her womb. And uh, yeah, and she got pregnant. Uh, so basically like, I don't even, I don't even know what to compare that to actually. Nine months later, she gives birth to a son, Perseus. Then King Acrisius, uh, has his daughter and grandson sealed in a chest and cast adrift in the sea. Instead of making sure he just killed him because that wouldn't lead to a good story. So the chest, you know, floats off, lands on the beach of an island where it's found and opened by a fisherman named Dictus. Being a kindly person, Dictus took the forlorn Danahe and her infant son home to his wife. The group decides that they would care for Danahe and raise Perseus as if he was their own son since they themselves were childless. Thus, Perseus grows to manhood safe and sound. Danahe's beauty does not fade with the passing years. And Dick, uh, this is brother, the tyrannical king, Polydectes, wishes to make her his wife upon seeing her, but he doesn't want to be a stepdad when he finds out about Perseus. So he decides to pretend to want to marry another woman instead. And he announces we're going to have a big wedding, and then everybody in his kingdom has to come give him a congratulations gift. And at the gift-giving feast, Perseus is the only person present without anything to give his king. No one told him, I guess. So he randomly promises to bring the head of the Gorgon uh, Medusa back, a monster with snakes for hair. And I'm guessing after saying that, he's like, what the fuck? Why did I disagree to that? Why couldn't I have offered to clean up after the party or maybe whittle a doll out of wood or something? Polydectes loves Perseus's offer, knowing that he would either die in the attempt, you know, for one look from that hideous snake monster turns men into stone, 
or he would get a coveted trophy with that head. You know, that they could, they could, you know, powerful weapon he could use to turn enemies to stone. Best gift ever. Also, the king's congratulations party was a big ruse because he somehow knew Perseus would choose to do something stupid like this and then he would die. Or he thought he would, you know, because really he just wanted his mom. Perseus left the king's uh, hall immediately after his foolish promise, set sail for J- Greece. Realizing he's an idiot for agreeing to get King Medusa's head, uh, he was too upset, to, or, you know, to get the King Medusa's head. He's too upset to get, say goodbye to his mom and foster parents. Takes off, goes to Delphi to learn the whereabouts of the Gorgons. The Oracle won't tell him, but does direct him to Dodona, or uh, Dodona, oh, motherfucker. Dodona. <laughs> Dodona. The land of the Whispering Oaks, where he would learn what to do next. In Dodona, Perseus learns nothing except that the gods were watching over him. Perseus meets the god Hermes who tells him how to care for an olive tree. And he's like, I don't even have an olive tree. And Hermes like, yeah, but I, come on, I'm good at it. If you just listen, you'll have some tasty olives. Come on. No, Hermes tells him that he needs to acquire some equipment from the uh, Stygian nymphs if he wants to succeed on his quest. He needs to get a pair of flying sandals, magic wallet, and a helmet of invisibility. Which, you know, they don't, they don't have a target or someplace like that. So now Perseus needs to find the nymphs of... Stygian, that's how you state it, not Stygian, Stygian. The problem was uh, that the uh, only the three gray sisters knew the way to Stygian, <laughs> to these nymphs. These nasty old ladies lived far to the west beyond the river ocean, and they had one eye that they shared amongst them. And they also had one tooth that all three of them would also share. I kind of get the eye part. I mean, one eye better than none for sure. But is one tooth really better than no teeth? I think it might be worse. Because now you just got one tooth constantly jamming yourself in the gums with. Um, Hermes guides the young hero to them while one of the gray women is passing her single eye to another Perseus jumps from behind them, snatches it. In some version of the story, he held it out over a deep precipice to get their eye back. The gray sisters have to tell him where the Stygian nymphs live. So they do. Can't blame them. Right? I think if he was holding that one tooth, they would have been like, I don't fucking care. Just drop it. Perseus then continues on his road to face Medusa. Hermes guides him, and along the way, they find some magic sandals, the wallet, the helmet. Hermes also presents Perseus with a very sharp sickle to sever Medusa's head. Don't want to get to the very end and have a dull-ass sickle ruin everything. Athena uh, is also helpful to Perseus. She shows him how to distinguish between the three awful Gorgons, because only Medusa of the three could be killed. Athena also gives Perseus a mirror-like shield that would enable him to see the Gorgons without being petrified. After the lengthy preparation, the hero is at last ready to take on Medusa. With his winged sandals, he flies to the land of Hyperboreans, uh, the northern land of those giants, you know, gods, you know, or those giants, I'm sorry, living the good life. There he finds the Gorgon sleeping, gazing into his mirrored shield. Perseus approaches them. As Athena guides his hand, he strikes off the correct monster's head with one blow. From the blood of Medusa, there springs, springs forth Pegasus, a winged war horse. Sweet. I wish horses sprang out of my blood. Or maybe that'd be super annoying. Probably annoying. Actually, I don't wish that. Can you imagine? You get one scratch inside your house and you're like, no, 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 no. Oh, fuck. Another horse. Oh, my hardwood floors. My white carpets. Goddamn all these horses. Just gonna live in a barn. Uh, Quickly, Perseus puts the head in his magic wallet. Puts on his helmet of invisibility. He does so in the nick of time for immediately the two other Gorgons awake. Seeing their slain sister, they set out to pursue and kill their, her murderer. But Perseus has no trouble eluding them because he just flies away in his magic blood horse. Easy peasy. Now he just has to get back, which would not be easy. First, he travels to Gibraltar, flies over to Libya and Egypt. 
During his flight, he sees a beautiful naked young woman chained to a rock. A lot of weird shit happening in this world. You know, just people chained to rocks all the time. He flies in to investigate. This is the Princess Andromeda. She's awaiting execution at the hands of a sea monster because her vain, dumbass mom had claimed she was more lovely than the Nereids or some nymphs of the sea. Perseus falls in love with her, hastily arranged with her parents. If he can get her off the chains, you know, she's going to be his wife, right? And they're like, yeah, no, totally, absolutely. And then the monster appears. Perseus lops its head off, frees Andromeda. Her parents are like, ah, never mind. You know, they're like, actually, now that we think about it a little bit more, there was somebody else we'd given our, our daughter to. So sorry about that. Thanks, but you're going to have to take off now. And then he doesn't want to take off. So then they summon a bunch of war- warriors to kill him. And he doesn't like that. So Perseus, you know, he, he finds himself faced with, you know, too many enemies to fight in hand-to-hand combat. So he just takes out the Medusa head, turns them all to stone. Also, he turns to stone and draws on his parents. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> I knew it wasn't a good thing when Zeus changed. Oh, oh and, he, and, he, and he turns them into constellations for their treachery. That's right. I knew it wasn't a good thing when Zeus changed uh, Callisto into a bear earlier, you know, turned into Ursa Major. Perseus then returns with Andromeda to the island where he'd been raised, finds that his mother, Danahe, and his guardian, Dictus, had fled to a temple, hiding from the, the, the vindictive King Polydectes, who's trying to court Danahe against her will. So Perseus goes to the king's banquet hall to find the king and his companions feasting. They greet him with insults, so he pulls up the Medusa head and changes those motherfuckers into stones. So laugh now, stone face guys. He says something cool like that. Laugh now, stone face guys. But you're not laughing because your faces are stone. Ha <laughs> ha. See, because you can't, you can't, you know, do things. You can't move anymore. Uh, to reward Athena for her aid, Perseus gives her the head to wear on her legendary breastplate, the Aegis. And he returns the sandals, wallet, and helmet to the uh, Stygian nymphs by means of Hermes. <laughs> Still not done. After making Dictus the new king of the island, Perseus set sail for his grandpa's kingdom of Argus, taking his mother and wife. He had hoped to be reconciled by his grandfather, King uh, Acrisius, but the king no longer rules there, having fled on learning that his grandson, who was destined to kill him, was a hero and was coming back. Before long, Perseus hears that the king of Larissa was going to hold an athletic competition, so he decides to enter. During the discus-throwing contest, Perseus's discus is caught by the wind, diverted into a throng of spectators like a tire let loose at the Indy 500 where it kills an old man that is none other than his grandfather, King Acrisius. Thus the oracle's premonition fulfilled in a super random and pretty contrived final destination kind of way. Stricken with guilt for killing a family member, Perseus arranges to exchange kingdoms with an uncle. He's like, I feel terrible. I don't want to live here anymore. Let's trade kingdoms. And the guy's like, all right, it's pretty random. He's king of this new kingdom. He, he recaptures lost territories, fortifies his city, Settles down with Andromeda, who I guess gets over him turning his, her parents to stone, and they have a number of sons. And one of his sons is Heracles, our next adventure. And before we go on, I got to say that, you know, like Lord of the Rings, those stories are making so much more sense. Like the, the J.R.R., you know, token, that kind of mythology, so clearly influenced by Greek mythology. I clearly, I so see it. So, so many over-the-top fantastical characters, so many random powers, so many in, inventive monsters. And the, I will say the imaginations of the ancient Greeks, pretty incredible, pretty layered and rich. Uh, okay, last tale for today, Heracles, most powerful and glorious Greek hero known uh, by his Latin name as well as Hercules. You may have heard of Hercules if you haven't heard of Heracles. A man of surpassing strength and coordination and sweet hair. He was able to perform superhuman feats and look handsome and cool while doing it. He was the son of Zeus and Zeus had arranged that one day, unlike most of his other sons, he would allow Heracles the chance to become a god. Heracles was a badass's badass, a protector friend and advisor to men, also a pervader of services for the gods. 
Like we said earlier, you know, Heracles helped the Olympians defeat the giants, and then later still he rescued the titan Prometheus from his punishment in the Caucasus. Or the Caucasus. Uh, Heracles was honored throughout Greece, and in honor of the great athletic prowess of the Greeks, he instituted the Olympic Games. And his life began with eh, a Zeus rape. The last mortal woman that Zeus ever raped was uh, Alcmene, the wife of Theban general Amphitryon, a woman renowned for her virtue, beauty, and wisdom. Zeus has selected her, not for his own enjoyment primarily, but because she was also the best choice for bearing the greatest hero of all time. Heracles was really kind of like the first test tube baby, genetically engineered, a divine Superman. While Amphitryon was off fighting the battle, Zeus came to the beautiful, to the beautiful Alcmene, disguised as her husband and well- he raped her in the same sense it would be rape as you snuck into your neighbor's bed in the middle of the night and had sex, you know, with a neighbor because they, for whatever reason, thought you were their actual partner. Fucking Zeus. No idea how rape he was. Uh, in between sex rounds, Zeus tells Alcmene stories of her husband's war victories. And then when the real M- Amphitryon arrives home shortly afterward, he's surprised at his wife's lack of interest in his recent military success stories. She also seems bored when they have sex. What's going on here? Well, you know, she thought she had just had sex with him. Nine months later, Alcmene was about to give birth to a strange set of twins. On the day on which Heracles should have been born, Zeus took a solemn oath that a descendant of Perseus born on that day would grow to rule all of Greece. In another jealous fit of rage, Zeus's long-suffering wife, Hera, manages to delay Alcmene's delivery by magic and induces an early delivery uh, with a woman bearing another one of Perseus's descendants. The result was that the infant... Uh, Eurystheus was destined to rule Greece. Eurystheus Eurystheus was destined to rule Greece instead of Heracles. But Zeus in his anger made Hera agree that if Heracles should perform 12 tasks for Eurystheus, he would become a god. So Alcmene gives birth to those twins. Heracles is born, the son of Zeus, and therefore half god. Uh, And then uh, (laughs) Iphicles is born, son of Amphitryon, and 0% god. Ah, I wish there was more Jasons in these tales. When these twins were about a year old, Hera, still being pissed at her cheating son of a bitch husband, sent two serpents to destroy Heracles and his crib. While Iphicles, fuck these names, screamed and tried to, I fucking hate these. I I hope we don't do another Greek subject. I'm happy that I did this today. I'm glad I'm learning this stuff. You know what? I will, oh, please, please, spacers, do not vote up anything else Greek for so long. Jesus Christ. Uh, even like Roman names are way better than these fucking pieces of shit. Uh, so while this fucking eye stupid name screams and tries to escape, Heracles strangles the snakes, one in each hand, like a boss baby. When he starts going to school, Heracles gravitates towards athletic disciplines, which he dominates. He doesn't care as much for school. He was never that much of a book guy. He also had quite the temper. Got that from dad. Given to rash acts, he, uh, he ends up smashing in the skull of his music tutor with a leer. And after that, his dad's like, maybe we should send him out to the woods. Uh, maybe he shouldn't be around as many people. By the age of 18, Heracles becomes the strongest man the world has ever seen. He would have dominated those metrics strongman competitions. Phenomenal athlete, super courageous, pretty well liked by the ladies. Speaking of ladies, in one Heracles story, a, a lion is killing uh, Amphitryon's cattle and Heracles is sent to dispatch of it. While hunting the lion, he comes across King Thespius' kingdom and more importantly, his 50 daughters. They love the number 50. Uh, and Heracles is given consent to mate with all 50 of these women. And from these matings, 51 sons would be born. Dude, it was potent. He was shooting God sperm. Man, if your ovaries hadn't dropped an egg, his shit would just wait. Or maybe just barge in, take one, drag it back to the fallopian tubes, right? Force their way in. Uh, in between shagging sessions, he also somehow found time to kill that lion. 
uh, with his uh, super trusty Olive Wood Club. Just club hunting lions. No big whoops. Uh, out of the lion's skin, he made a cape and a hood and a lot of depictions of him. He's wearing this lion skin garment, holding that wooden club. All this happens after he'd already established a little bit of his legend. Uh, Heracles wasn't always treated like a god, given all these women. The city of Thebes was once forced to pay tribute to the minion king as reparation when Her- uh, Heracles lived there. When Heracles was met with heralds hellbent on collecting a tribute from him, he was treated disrespectfully. They treated him like some common, not God guy. So we cut off their ears, noses, and hands and sent them home. Right? That'll teach them. And then this kicked off a war with the minions at, uh, and they had advantage over thieves. But with Athena's aid and his own reckless confidence, Heracles helps the Thebans crush their opponents. As a reward, King Creon of Thebes gives, gives the hero his daughter, uh, Megara, as a wife. And this marriage doesn't work out too well for Megara. Uh, Heracles, uh, uh, Hera, excuse me, still not a fan of this bastard son of her husband, sends a frenzied madness upon Heracles. And in his madness, he brutally slaughters his wife and children. When he comes to his senses, he's overcome with the horror and guilt of what he's done. He contemplates suicide. Finally, he goes to the Oracle at Delphi to learn how he could atone for his crime. The Oracle informs him that he would have to submit himself to King Eurytheus of Mycenae as a slave and perform whatever tasks his royal cousin should command. Now, this is the guy who was destined to become God by, you know, uh, Hera's trickery when Zeus made that decree. Although far inferior to Heracles in courage and might, Eurytheus, uh, Eurytheus, God damn it! Eurystheus had cunning and he devised a series of tasks that were next to impossible to complete. I'm going to call him E from now on. We got E and Heracles. E is Eurystheus. All right, these tasks are known as the 12 labors of Heracles that this hero undertook in his 12 years of servitude to the spiteful king. And these labors would elevate Heracles. You know what? I'm not. I'm I'm going to force myself to say that word. Eurystheus. Okay. All right. All right. Let's fucking let's power through the end of this. His first labor was to kill the Nemean lion, a magical animal with an impenetrable hide. After vainly attacking it with arrows, Heracles finally decides just to throttle the beast with his bare hands, which he, he kills it, carries it back to uh, Mycenae. Didn't even need that club. Uh, obviously, this is a mythological legend, but can you, can you imagine if a real dude beat a lion to death with his fist? Not just a lion, but like the, the strongest, most fearsome lion. I bet like, that would be, if, if that was recorded, that would be the most viral video of all time. Even, even like animal lovers would have to respect, like even, even like somebody working at like PETA, like they'd be pissed, but also would probably watch it a couple of times. Uh, Eurystheus is blown away by how efficient of a killer Heracles is and kind of gets scared of him. And for everyone's safety in his own, he, uh, he makes him kind of stay outside the city after this. Uh, Heracles' second labor is to destroy the Lernaean Hydra a serpent with nine heads and poisonous breath that lived in the swamps and ravaged crops and cattle. Here, I thought that lion was a formidable foe. Heracles marches right up and flushes the magic snake out of its hydra lair, starts clubbing off its heads like a champion. For every head that he just home run swing, uh, you know, swat off of his body, two more heads would grow in his place though. So not good. So he has his nephew brand the severed necks after he like fucking clubs a head off. This guy will cauterize it. And with, with that, you know, technique, they slay the hydra. And then he uses the Hydra's blood to make some poison arrows because he's efficient. And he's like a MacGyver type God guy. Uh, the third labor was to capture a deer with golden horns, bring it back alive. And this exploit took Heracles a full year. Probably would have taken him like just a day if, if the assignment had been to club its fucking deer head off. But it's much harder for him to, you know, keep things alive. Heracles' fourth labor is to capture a giant wild boar that's been devastating nearby lands. 
On this expedition, Heracles is treated hospitably by the center Pholus, who opens a barrel of wine for him. But then other centers uh, savagely demand the wine, and Heracles has to light him up with some arrows for being disrespectful. What are, you, what are you thinking, fucking with the ancient Greek Stephen Seagal? When he brings the boar back, Heracles shows it to King Eurystheus, nailed it, who was so terrified that he literally trembled in fear, begged Heracles to take the carcass of the boar out of his sight. Awkward. Way to embarrass yourself for the strongest man on earth. The fifth labor wasn't nearly as heroic. It was frankly kind of a dick move. Eurystheus asks Heracles to clean the Aegean stables in one day. Tough task because uh, the, you know, uh, there was thousands of cattle in these stables. They hadn't been cleaned for years. This seemed like an impossible job. But Heracles, he could be pretty clever in addition to being stronger than the mountain from Game of Thrones. And he diverts two rivers into the stalls and promptly cleans up the mess. Boom! Sixth labor, Heracles is to drive away an enormous number of birds that were plaguing the people of a nearby land. The goddess Athena helps drive the birds from their thickets and Heracles slew them uh, with his arrows, with his poison arrows. Seventh labor, it involves capturing a maddened Cretan bull that Poseidon had given to King Minos. Heracles quickly masters the animal, makes it submit to his alpha glory and brings it back to Eurystheus. Eurystheus and is like, what else you got? What, what else you got for me? Next, next, Heracles' eighth labor to capture the man-eating mares of Diomedes. Yes, horses who ate people because this fucking land is insane. And he accomplishes this by first killing their guardians and then fighting off an entire army. He then serves the horse's flesh to Diomedes himself, king of Thrace and son of the god Ares. In some accounts, he actually doesn't kill any of the horses and uh, feeds Diomedes to his own horses. He also rescues, uh, rescues Queen Alcatis, I think, by fighting off death itself, the god um, Thanatus, I think. There's just too many of these words. When she was scheduled to die in her husband's place. Get back, death. Get back or you get the club. The ninth labor was to fetch the splendid girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. The girdle was given to her by uh, Ares, kind of just like a crown, like a symbol of her rule. Hippolyta greets Hercules or Heracles and his entourage cordially agrees to part with the girdle. However, Hera, still pissed, spreads a rumor that the hero was going to abduct Hippolyta. So the Amazons seize their weapons, thinking that the queen was behind the assault. Heracles kills her and many of the Amazons as well. Bummer for Hippolyta and most of her soldiers. Good for Heracles because he gets that girdle. Uh, The 10th labor requires stealing the cattle of Geryon, a monster on a western isle described in some accounts as a giant with three heads and one body, and in other accounts as a giant with three actual bodies. Not sure how that works. Uh, This this guy also had a dog with two heads, Orthrus, brother of Cerberus, or Cerberus, that guardian of the underworld we already talked about. Heracles slew Geryon and his dog with that trusty club, took all his cattle, on his journey, Heracles also set up the pillars of Hercules, Heracles, God damn it, to commemorate the trip. These were two enormous rocks, one of which is the Rock of Gibraltar. The 11th labor, almost done, consisted of getting the golden apples of uh, Hesperides, Hesperides, uh, Hesperides. They were in a fabulous land far to the west. They were guarded by goddesses. On his way to snatch him, Heracles met the gigantic bandit Antaeus who forced strangers to wrestle with him and who gained great strength from contact with the ground. During their wrestling match, Heracles strangled him by holding him up in the air. Heracles would have torn shit up in the UFC. He'd been undefeated. First round knockouts, right? In every fight. Uh, Finally, Heracles reaches Atlas, the father of the 
Hesperides, who was holding up the sky. Atlas agrees to get the apples of Heracles, will hold up the heavens in his place for a bit. Being the smarty pants he was, Heracles agrees. And he held up the heavens, no problem. Because the dude was made out of titanium and steroids. Atlas goes on to get the golden apples. And then once he fetches them, he decides to let Heracles hold up the sky forever. Lucky for Heracles, Atlas was super duper dumb. And Heracles was like, yeah, no problem. I'll keep holding up the heavens. Can you just uh, hold them up for like a second? If you can just, listen, I'll, I'll hold this forever. But if you can just hold it for like a second, I can make a few posture adjustments, you know, because I wasn't planning on holding it forever the first time you handed it to me. And Atlas was like, all right. No, yeah, no that, sounds, that sounds reasonable. That sounds fair. And then when Atlas, uh, you know, holds the heavens back up for a second, Atlas just grabs the apples and walks the fuck off. Now the 12th labor. Heracles' 12th and final labor involves uh, retrieving uh, Cerberus from Hades, that three-headed dog bro of the dog he'd already killed earlier that guarded the entrance to the underworld. He was able to capture the dog using only his bare hands. Hermes guided Heracles into the netherworld. Netherworld. My mouth is fucking going numb. (laughs) It really is. Like my mouth is legitimately sore from this, from doing this specific suck, from trying to move in these Greek ways for over two fucking hours. Uh, Heracles decides to rescue his friend and fellow hero and mythical founder of Athens, Theseus, from the chair of oblivion, since he was down there anyways. Heracles attacks the monstrous dog, driving the wind from it, forcibly leads it back to Eurytheus, who was so afraid of it, he returned the beast back to Hades. But not before legend has it that guardian of the underworld mated with Zeus's wife, Hera, who mated with Cerebus, or Cerberus, ugh, to anger Zeus, and then Hera herself would, in secret, later give birth to Bojangles, a name that has a rhythm I like. The Pitbull protector of the suck would later lose an eye and a leg while taking two thunderbolts from Zeus in the Battle of Atlantis. Why didn't those thunderbolts kill him? Because he has the blood of the gods in his veins. And if Zeus were to battle Bojangles again, he will die, for that is what the Oracle of Delphi has foretold. The prophecy of the canine king of the suck, who Zeus wounded twice, but who Zeus can never hurt again, who would kill Zeus if he tried... The tryst with Zeus's wife may never be avenged. Bojangles is immortal and incredibly powerful and uses his god blood to defend the suck. Praise Bojangles, long live Bojangles. No mortal can harm our sweet good boy. Oh my heck, this is a weird episode, gosh dang. Back to Heracles. With that final deed, his servitude to Eurystheus ends and his penance for the murders of his wife and children are complete. And he did more hero stuff that if you want to learn about, you can fucking read about him. Because I'm done with his name, other than his death. It's a weird death. Uh, Rising in pain, Heracles got like one last godlike rage in by grabbing a random man. Uh, This is after he gets uh, accidentally poisoned in this crazy situation. He flings this guy into the sea. Then he begins uprooting pines to build a funeral pyre for himself. And when it's completed, he climbs upon it, orders that the fire be set to it. And in some accounts, he uh, sets his own funeral pyre fire. Ultimate tough guy death. He's like, ah, don't worry about it. I'm going to build it. I'll get these trees uprooted and I'll build myself a little funeral pyre and then I'll push it out in the water. I'll hop on it and I'll just set it fire to myself. As the flames reach his body, Heracles vanishes in a blast of lightning and that's when he uh, departs back to Olympus to live as the son of Zeus, as a god. He marries Hebe, the cupbearer, and enjoys his life amongst the gods. And there's so much more to Greek mythology. I mean, we could go on and on and thank God we're not going to. Because I, I liked so much learning this. I hope you liked learning <laughs> a lot from me. But whoo, it's no wonder they have like master's uh, courses in literally just like Greek mythology. Like you can get degrees in this shit. Uh, so many stories, so fantastical. 
so, so many hard to say names. Ancient Greece, man, flying gods, flying horses, flying sandals, birds with human tits, giants that can sack mountains, 50-headed monsters, divine, pretty rapey entities. The gods were petty, abused their powers, fought one another, cheated on one another, interfered with human lives in countless ways, mostly in bad ways, made terrible decisions, countless mistakes, and the ancient Greeks worshiped them. And I guess why not? You know, might as, if that's the only gods you know, might as well try and please them. You know, it's, if you're going to have crazy gods up there, I guess better to be on their good side than their bad side. And these stories were first told as far back as roughly 5,000 years ago, and we're still fascinated. Why? Because we are still are in so many ways, just like those crazy ancient Greek gods, an insane species. Uh, we still worry about monsters of one kind or another. We still admire reckless bravery to the bloodthirsty courage of warrior heroes because we want to find some of that heroism in ourselves. We want to laugh in the face of death. You know, that, that scares us all. Humans still cheat, rape, quarrel. We're still paranoid and fight and love and lust and sometimes trust. We still have ambition, regret, feel anger and jealousy and insecurity, everything else. Hopefully we're quite a bit less, uh, you know, incestuous and rapey than in the, in the Greek world. I'd like to think we've hopefully gotten a little better that way. Maybe there's not quite so many monsters in today's world, or maybe the monsters just look different. I mean, you know, nuclear bombs, I guess in a lot of ways, are much scarier than some weird hundred-headed thing. Really, the world in so many fundamental ways is just the same as it's ever been. The colorful characters of these stories, yeah, they're over the top, but the elements underneath, pretty much the same. You know, we're still ambitious, still doing all these same things. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's tale. Let's revisit a few points and learn one more little bit of trivia about the Greeks in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, the Greek gods are insane. My God, they're insane. And I guess since they were made in man's image and based on the true crime sucks we've done so far, so are we. Number two, thank you, Homer and Hesiod and the other ancient Greek authors for writing all this stuff down. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Theogony, and more. So glad we do have records of these crazy tales. Number three, Zeus, leader of the Greek gods, real monster. Dude wanted to fuck everything, whether things wanted to be fucked or not. I wonder if we would have been a better god if he just had a better dad, you know? His dad, Cronus, ate his own children. Ate him. Be a good dad. Number four, Heracles was a badass, half god, half man, 100% prime Jean-Claude Van Damme. Dude knew how to swing a club, how to punch a lion, how to choke out a giant, even held up the, the heavens for Atlas for a bit before he himself ascended to Mount Olympus. Number five, new info. If you're not a North American uh, listener and you want to get a good, or if you are, excuse me, if you are a North American listener and you want to get a good feel for what a Greek temple looks like, but you, you know, you can't afford or don't have the time to go to Europe, Nashville, Tennessee randomly might be your next best bet. The Parthenon in Centennial Park in Nashville, built in 1897, is a full-scale replica of the original Parthenon in Athens, Greece, that 5th century BCE temple built to worship the goddess Athena patron goddess of Athens, the daughter of Zeus and goddess of wisdom, warfare, and more, the plaster replicas of the Parthenon marbles found in the treasury room of the Nashville Parthenon are direct casts of the original sculptures. Why Nashville? I didn't know this, but it's a one-time more common nickname was the Athens of the South. The ancient Greek gods still alive so many ways in our modern world. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Greek gods has been sucked. Woo! I'm literally sweating. <laughs> literally sweaty. Oh, wow. That was a lot of info. Um, I, I hope you did enjoy it. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, those stories, you know, you, you try to make them 
the least crazy you can make them. And they're just inherently like, what in the shit were they talking about? But again, I, I do think interesting. And it is just fascinating to learn that like, man, that many thousands of years ago, humans were that imaginative. And I don't know. I just, I, for some reason that I wasn't expecting that. I, I, I expected, uh, I didn't expect the level of detail in all these tales. Just, just picture like, you know, thousands of years ago, hearing these around some campfire or, you know, in some, you know, city setting back in one of these city states, you know, especially like as a kid, you know, some orator up there telling all these tales about these gods and acting as if they really happened. How like blown away you'd be talking about, you fucking hear the snake? God, I hope we don't see that thing. Oh man, I think I can see him up there right now. That, that, yeah, that, that must be where Olympus is. I mean, this was, this was real to them. Pretty, pretty, pretty insane. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess, Harmony Camp, Reverend Doctor, Joe Dick Paisley, men of many nicknames. Thanks to the Bit Elixir, App Design Crew, Axis Apparel, and of course, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, who does such a good job. We have to rein him in now. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a curious son of a bitch, and we are glad to have him. Uh, if you want to meet more Time Suckers, I keep seeing more, uh, which again, you know, I mentioned before, it's, it feels great. Join the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group for even more social interaction. Link over to the Time Suck Discord from the Time Suck app. A link for both in the episode description. And next week, uh, we're kind of related, I guess, you know, uh, in a theology sense, but also very different. Doing a Halloween suck uh, on the Church of Satan. Does it actually have anything to do with the Christian devil? What are the myths? What are the facts? Who was Anton LaVey? Someone to be feared? Evil guy? Nice guy? What are, the, what are the rumors? What are the conspiracies about the church of Satan? A lot of speculation out there, but what do we actually know? What it means to be satanic. Ooh, it's going to be a, a dark and interesting, or maybe not. You know, people think it is. We'll find out. Going to be an interesting suck. Now let's, uh, let's see what interesting things are going on within the church of time suck on today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Turns out that horrible Father Yod music from last week actually really helped out Time Sucker Alyssa, who writes, Hey, Mother Sucker, let me preface this by saying I have obsessive compulsive disorder. One of my symptoms is that I get bits of music stuck in my head and hear them over and over and over. This happens to everyone sometimes, but for me, it's constant at max volume. And I'll even hear it in my sleep. It can, these songs can be so loud, they literally drown out the sound of my own thoughts. So normally I cringe when a podcaster either sings, <laughs> oops, awkward, or plays music because it guarantees I'll be hearing that song on repeat all day long. Today I listened to the Source Family episode and when you said you were going to play their album, I sighed and prepared for the worst. But not only was it so bad and utterly incomprehensible that it refused to stick in my brain, it even drove out the song that was stuck in my brain at that moment. Thank you, Dan. I think you cured part of my OCD without side effects and for far less money than my psychiatrist charges keep on sucking. Well, thank you, Alyssa. You know what? I know I sang some other songs today, so let's help you cleanse just a little bit more. Uh, just get a little bit more Father Yod in here. Does that, does that help? Maybe, maybe need something a little bit, you know, moves a little bit more. We can, we can skip it up. How about, how about that? Is that nonsensical, no melody at all, whatever music helping you? I know it helps Joe Paisley. Oh, man. This is all he listens to anymore. He loves it. It's his favorite. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's, that's on the album. That was, that was stuff they decided to record. Thank you, Alyssa. 
Uh, Time sucker Mason Spradlin has an interesting source family cult update. He writes, good morning, evening, afternoon, whatever time of day you are reading this. Oh, great suck master. My name is Mason from Tacoma, Washington. First off, I want to say love the podcast. Every episode allows me to dive deep into the weird and curious side of my brain. And it reassures that there are others like me. However, I was listening to the most recent episode on the Source Family Cult, and you mentioned that one of the members had joined Jay-Z Knight's group up here in Yelm. It reminded me of a story my dad had told me about uh, him visiting that compound. Now, it's not anything weird. He was a septic truck driver and had to pump a tank out there. He was explaining how armed guards escorted him throughout the compound. He wasn't allowed to look at anyone, talk to anyone, or anything of that nature. He also described a group of people in an almost cattle-holding pen blindfolded, trying to, quote, use their spirits to find inner peace in the form of a relic nailed to the fence post. So basic line after hearing this cult shit is weird, man. Anyways, if you read this, awesome. Thanks for sharing my story. Just thought you'd be interested in some weird shit my family's experienced. Once again, love the show. Keep on doing that sick sucking you do. Oh, and shout out to my good buddy, Tim, for introducing me to the cult of the curious. Well, thank you, Mason. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, so sad that people are still in that cult in Yelm right now. We've talked about that on The Secret Suck. Yep, the uh, ugh, that that weird, weird Jay-Z Knight cult out there. Being taken advantage of by another false prophet. Uh, quick shout out for an awesome Navy vet, space lizard requested by Time Sucker Amber Bellin. Amber writes, surprise birthday shout out. I know you probably get a lot of requests like this, so no worries if you cannot accommodate, but I figured it did not hurt to ask. My amazing boyfriend, Ron Cunningham, is turning 50 on November 12th, He's an amazing man who served in the Navy for 27 years and is loved and admired by many. He's a loyal space lizard, tells everyone he knows about Time Suck, sports stickers on his truck and water bottles, and proudly wears his Time Suck apparel everywhere we go. For his birthday, requested gifts were mostly involving Time Suck merch and tickets to see Dan in Spokane. A little happy 50th Ron would be amazing on the episode that drops November 11th if time allows. I know this is not that episode, but happy 50th, Ron. Happy early birthday from myself and Amber. You know, we get a, we do get a fair amount of emails, uh, a ton actually, which we are so thankful for. And I was afraid if I didn't throw this message in this episode, when I saw it, I would I would just for, uh, not remember and it would get lost. So happy birthday. Look forward to seeing you at the Spokane shows. Uh, next update from a sucker. This is our last update from a sucker who, uh, you know, I want to make sure it remains anonymous. I know if you're listening that you did write your name, but I want to protect you to be safe. This sucker made a tough choice and I think very much did the right thing. And they wrote, Hi, Master Sucker. I'm new to the cult. I've been binge listening to your podcast in my super boring office job. I've been wanting to reach out to you and thank you for your outspokenness against pedophiles. I know it must seem like the obvious choice, but I myself was in a situation where it felt like I was the only one who thought these sick people were doing anything wrong. My now ex-boyfriend, who I uprooted my whole life for, moved 90 miles away from home to be with, turned out to be grooming a 13-year-old and had over 700 images downloaded onto my computer. I didn't hesitate to report him, though I was worried about what could happen to me since the computer was mine. My friends who didn't know him, well, found it easy enough to denounce him, but for his lifelong friends, it wasn't so easy. They understood it was wrong, but ultimately they took his side. And I found myself far away from home without a single friend to talk to. Sometimes I still doubt whether I really did the right thing, but hearing you talk about this issue assures me that I did. It's also something I think all of us should think about. As much as you think certain people are monsters, what if it was somebody you loved and trusted? Would you really be able to make the right choice? What even is the right choice? Thanks for reading my long message. 
Uh, I could use many more words to express my gratitude. Keep on sucking, anonymous. Well, you know what? You absolutely did the right thing. Never help cover for a pedophile. You likely just saved a child or several from the unwanted sexual touches of a stranger, from a lifetime of bad memories, counseling, you know, having to overcome that. You're not a narc. You're a fucking hero. Uh, Fuck this person's friends who act like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Nimrod is more than pleased. Sweet sucker. You're the best. You're an awesome meat sack. Have no worries about that at all going forward. Keep protecting the innocent and thank yourself for doing an amazing job, especially surrounded by their friends, which probably made it that much harder to kind of do, but you did it. Uh, Thanks for all your messages, suckers. Thanks for being wonderful meat sacks. Thanks for taking a chance today on a strange, strange episode. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Sorry if I uh, got irritated for a second about my pronunciation. I try so hard. I try so hard. I want to do such a good job. I want to do good boy, good job. Uh, try not to get fucked by Zeus. And you know what? Why don't you, why don't you keep on sucking if you, if you, if you, if you have a chance? If, you, if, no one, if none of the gods are interfering or anything, you know? What a bunch of nutty stories. Fuck you, Zeus. No, fuck you, Ben. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.